Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Again, with your Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy. You know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? The ancient foundation of the North American continent has been impressed upon by man in many varieties for hundreds of thousands of years. And only recently within this grand scope has a culture so vast expanded in such little time. The best and worst of old world institution and empire transplanted and supplanted upon a new world, forging a new vision in the form of the world's first Masonic Republic. Here to discuss this is Robert W. Sullivan IV, a Freemason of the 32nd degree, philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, editor, mystic, radio TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer who was educated first at Gettysburg College, studying abroad at St. Catherine's College at Oxford University, later returning to Oxford University through Trinity College, where he was admitted to the State Bar of Maryland and the District of Columbia. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Robert W. Sullivan IV. The way Clinton was working behind the scenes with both groups to formulate policy, to get the Erie Canal built, to get Union College built. And it was Clinton who was basically creating the country behind the scenes, working with both political parties behind closed doors. This is ultimately exposed in the 1820s by something known as the William Morgan Affair, where the American public learned, that, learned for the first time that there was this Illuminati cabal, who we call it a deep state, if you will, working behind duly elected government. People were learning that people like Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States, were taking orders from this guy named DeWitt Clinton, you know, who was mayor and governor of New York. And because of this, there was this huge backlash against Freemasonry. It almost disappeared. One of the reasons it didn't was because Andrew Jackson, one of the who was president and became president shortly thereafter, didn't cave into it. And Masonry at that point in time, distance it was it was perceived as a sort of this black magic cabal. And Masonry survived it by saying, hang one time out, we have nothing to do with, you know, the occult or hermeticism. We're essentially a, a fraternal order that helps widows and orphans. That's it. It takes a huge hit. Many grand lodges close. There are teachers who refuse to teach the children 
of Freemasons. There is a huge backlash against Freemasonry. One of the things that comes out of this is a rea one of the reactions to this anti-Masonic, you know, attitude of the country is Skull and Bones, where William Huntington Russell and William Alfonso Taft, Taft William Howard Taft's great-grandfather, formed this Masonic-like Illuminati secret society to combat anti-Masonry called Skull and Bones at Yale University. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. I am the author of five books, uh, The Royal Arch of Enoch, uh, three cinema symbolism books, and a work of fiction called A Pact with the Devil. I am a Freemason. I'm a lawyer here in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been a Freemason since 1997, so 25 years, or it is. And uh, right now, what I'm doing right now is, the third cinema book was published about a year ago. What I'm doing right now is I'm going back and making some edits to my first four books, The Royal Arch, Pack with the Devil, and the first two movie books. I'm, I'm making some edits, some corrections to those. And as I do those, I'm also working on Cinema Symbolism 4. So, so that's what I'm working on right now. The first book that will be sort of relaunched, as it were, is A Pact with the Devil. That's nearly complete. I, sh I should be relaunching that probably in the next two to three months. Uh, then I plan on doing Royal Arch, then the first cinema book, then Cinema Symbolism 2. There's a couple of things in there that I'm, I'm not happy about, I'm a little disappointed with. So I've made, it, I've made it a goal to correct them. And I'm also, I have started working on Cinema Symbolism 4 on the side, and that's well underway. So uh, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Wonderful. You're keeping yourself very busy, and I'm excited to see the revised edition because I've been reading Royal Ark of the Enoch and the amount that you cover in this book, and you do it really well. I mean, I can understand why maybe you, you would want to go back with, you know, 850 pages. I'm sure there's <laughs> there's things that, that you think you can improve on naturally. The artist's eye is always more critical but I think, you know, you really didn't fail at all to show the reader really how deep and varied the, you know, roots of Freemason are. And, and maybe we can boil them down to a few sources or a few points in history, but it does feel like a very complicated array of different threads that get woven together in this very pivotal time period. And maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but can you talk to us about 1717 and why that year is so important for Freemasonry? You know, in my own research, I'm, I'm studying Yale and Skull and Bones and other groups more local. And Yale College was built in 1717. The first federal courthouse in the you know, New Haven Colony was built in 1717. So I'm finding even parallels in seemingly non-related research with this year. Yeah, there, there is always this synch synchronistic element with it that really can't be accounted for, you know, that that is that always seems to linger with, with, with this material. I'm not right. sure why, but but there is. There is this sort of Jungian synchronicity going on with, with a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. 1717 is is when, on June 24th, the English Grand Lodge is founded, and, and this is when Freemasonry officially comes onto the history maps. There are clearly Masonic lodges existing before that time. This is irrefutable. There are lodges in Scotland along the in the continent of Europe, but it's it's in 1717 on June 24th 
which is a date of esoteric importance. This is, of course, midsummer, the feast day of John the Baptist, the Lord of Summer, as it were, when the when 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 the Grand Lodge is when when the Grand Lodge is formed in England. So that's that's really a seminal date for for you know tracing Freemasonry's history. Granted, I mean, I'll be the first to admit there are lodges existing in Scotland, in England before then, but this is when it officially comes onto the history pages. Now, when you say there were lodges, were they proto-Freemasonic in the sense that they didn't maybe have the same names, titles, customs, and so on? Or were they actually, you know, really, you know, like an embryo for this movement that really flourishes in 1717? How, how direct is the, the, the correlation there between those earlier lodges that you mentioned? Right. This is one of the big problems because the question you asked has no definitive answer to it. It depends on it depends on who we, we just don't know. The answer is we really don't have a definitive answer on it. Clearly, what we know is what well, I mean, what is irrefutable is there were these operating Masonic guilds existing in the continent of Europe and Scotland in particular that were behind construction trades, building cathedrals, c- civil engineering projects things of that nature. And there were these Masonic lodges, you know, and they consisted of engineers, you know, you know, mathematicians, architects that were drawing up plans to, you know, to, to construct buildings. At some point in time, they started admitting to their lodge meetings, non-operative Masons, essentially people like doctors, lawyers, businessmen, to, as a haven to discuss esoteric democratic ideas away from the prying eye of the church and the monarch. This is, this is happening at how often and how fluid this was. We just don't know, but it did happen. And it's, it's out of this sort of nexus that you get this idea of Freemasonry coming together and incorporating a lot of doctrines and, and, and drawing upon these older ancient Masonic charges where they talk about the perfection of geometry and how geometry is derived from the Egyptians and the flooding of the Nile and how this is all coming about through characters like Hermes Trismegistus and Enoch. And, you know, the, the, these ancient origins of, of stone building and ge- geometry and architecture. And it, it sort of morphs into these, you know, you know, where it's not only it's not only discussing architecture, but it's discussing these other esoteric topics as well. And, and things related to, you know, it becomes it's not only civic engineering or civil engineering. It's you know how can these how can these the the the, the ideas of 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 building be used in like say creating a doctor you know creating a physician's office creating a lawyer's office you know these these same sort of you know esoteric doctrines into building society are now transported into okay how can I better myself as a lawyer how can I better myself as a journalist how can I better myself as a physician. And, and there's this overlap with it. And as you said earlier, it, it, Masonry does incorporate a lot of these mystical doctrines. And you'll even find this going on in, in the very early days. I mean, in Scotland, you had this guy named William Shaw running around who was organizing the Masonic lodges. And even he, you know, I mean, he directly says in there, one of the things a Freemason should learn is this thing known as the art of men. This was something that was revived in the Renaissance by this character named Giordano Bruno, who ties it into the hermetic arts, the occult, things like that. So, you know, even from a very early standpoint, you get this very esoteric influx into masonry. 
and it really does. It, 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 when you start analyzing it, it really does draw on a lot of philosophical, mystical doctrines. This is irrefutable. And then again, as as you asked from you know the first question, it, it really all comes together in 1717, where you have the formation of these grand lodges, and and a lot of it has to do with you know what are we going to incorporate, what are we not going to incorporate, you know what are we going to what are we going to keep in place, what are we not going to keep in place, and there's a lot there's a lot of history going on with it. Absolutely. And and like you mentioned, the non-operative Masons became a part of it somehow along the way. And what I found most fascinating towards the beginning portion of your book was the connections between the development of law and Masonry. And as a lawyer yourself, I'm sure this is sort of, you know, double interest of yours. But, you know, can you explain maybe a little bit, and I know this is a very dense, dense subject, but can you explain maybe some of the philosophical philosophical concepts that these men were playing around with and maybe even the atmosphere that they were living in that would have, you know, forced them underground with these sorts of ideas? Well, yeah, absolutely. Masonry is a very democratic and illegitimate society. It's the sort of thing you park your politics and religion at the door. And and so so when you have in the early days with, you know, you know, a lot of uh, barristers in England and, and things were very were drawn to this. And out of Freemasonry, you you will find a lot of the principles that you find in the legal profession. You know, and you know, the, these are of course incorporated later on into the Constitution of the United States, the triple division of government between uh, ju- the judiciary, the executive and the legislature, the, the triple division of government, the, the whole idea of equality and, you know, where where one of the things that was very appealing with Freemasonry was you could have in a lodge a member of the royal family sitting next to somebody who was, you know, a non-royal, or you could have a Christian sitting next to a Jew or a Muslim. Um, this was all very appealing in the age of enlightenment. And it's, it's really out of the Masonic lodges that you do get... I mean, a lot of the ideas that, you know, come into the Enlightenment, uh, you know, coming out of the Renaissance, the idea of deism, the idea of architecture, you know, and how architecture, you know, reflects, you know, the, these democratic values. And, uh, and of course, we'll find this, you know, in, in the professional trades as well. You you will find in a lot of the Masonic literature, this idea of, you know, the, the you know, and this comes out of the works of people like Vitruvius, you know, the architect that man is the microcosm reflecting the macrocosm and you know justice has to be dispensed equal and of course we will find this in architecture you know with you know i mean for example with like you know da vinci the vitruvian man i mean who is that named after you know vitruvius vitruvius is architecture is always interlaid with circles over squares because the vitruvian man the man with the two limbs extended the arms the legs and the head can fit inside a circle and a square so you always find churches laid out on circles and squares we even find shakespeare's globe theater was laid out upon circles and squares this whole idea is, is microcosmic connected to the macrocosm. God is a creation, or excuse me, man is a creation of God. So you you do, and again, this is also reflected in the trades, architecture, the legal profession, this whole idea of you're part of something greater. And, and by dispensing justice, you know, this isn't just some sort of, you know, uh, hackneyed operation going on. This is some sort of divine process that you're engaged in. That this is, you know, coming out of the Masonic lodges, this whole idea of democracy, egalitarianism and it's it's really a a crucible the masonic lodges are a crucible for this idea of you know dispatching of the king and 
queen, you know, and the Vatican, where, you know, the, the Mason is, you know, so, so, sort of, you know, the arbiter of, of democracy, as it were. And this is critical. I mean, this is absolutely critical to understanding the history of the United States. Oh, undoubtedly. And, you know, before we go too far, I know, you know, with certain guests that we've had on, we may attract the attention of, of people who just, you know, hold really extreme beliefs towards the Masons. And I think you, you say it really, you, you write it very well. And I would love to, uh, if I could find the exact quote, but you talk about how there's this sort of fundamentalist reaction to Freemasonry that really seems to be almost ironic in the sense that, you know, the same things that they're chastising the Masons for, they themselves are guilty of. I cannot find that. I took a screenshot of it and saved it. But but yeah, it is it is unfortunate that we live in this sort of very open minded atmosphere that we're now in with the podcasting uh, community. Sure. Yet there are these hot button words that just cause maybe sometimes a small portion, but sometimes surprisingly a larger portion of the audience to just, you know, react. They put their reacting ears on and throw their listening ears at the door. But, sure. but yeah, if you could dispel maybe some suspicions, I mean, obviously your work, you, you have a certain interest, but I would not by any means after reading your, your book, think that you're biased at all. I mean, you, you do a very well a uh, very good job of of putting the facts together, you know, without a lot of your own opinion. Right. Well, that's one of the things that I'm most proud of with my works of nonfiction is I always try to present them objectively. I I, I never I never, especially with the movie books, when I analyze film, I, I I never try to. I mean, there's there's a lot of people. I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of people who come at this material from sort of this Christian right wing social warrior, you know, warrior standpoint. I don't do that. I, I just present the facts. I guess it's my training as a lawyer. My my attitude is I present the facts and let the reader decide. If the person wants to, if the reader wants to think it's evil, they can think that. If they want to think it's positive, they can think that. If they if they're neutral about it, that's okay also. But sure, masonry is almost it's when you're dealing with the history of masonry, it's almost like a reaction counter reaction reaction counter reaction history almost the, the one thing that you you know i mean and there is there there is there is definitely the one thing the one thing about masonry is it's very popular and it's it always has been and it because of that it does does draw upon critics you know it, do, it, it does draw critics to it one of them is the roman catholic church and when i say that i'm talking about more about the papacy than i am about the, the the jesuits they're they're another they're another cast of characters on their own one of the things that the, the papacy has always wrestled with is this notion of having christians sitting alongside jews and maybe non-christians in, in what could be term sort of a quasi religious atmosphere and 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 they just had the the darndest time wrestling with this finally finally the catholic church kind of in the in the late 19th century gives up on this and they just kind of throw their hands up and say okay you know to hell with this we're just gonna at this point create our own freemasonry we're gonna call it the knights of columbus the the, the one thing that, that freemasonry that the masonic lodge definitely seems to be born out of is this notion of the counter-reformation. And this was something begun by the Society of Jesus to counter the Protestant Reformation. And, and this is attempted early on in the 1600s by this group, whether it existed or not, we don't know, called the Rosicrucians, which is sort of this proto-Masonic society that, depending on who you want to read, exists or don't, doesn't exist. But it's, it's, it's the... In, in the early in the early 1600s, you get these Rosicrucian manifestos hitting Europe, 
calling for basically religious toler toler you know you know re- religious freedom universal reformation religious freedom formation of monarchies and and this is new and and this causes a you know a, a fright amongst a lot of the you know more reactionary groups. It doesn't really work. They, they, the Rosicrucians disappear kind of as quickly as they come. They're pretty much dispelled with by the start of the Thirty Years' War. They really incorporate a lot. If you read the Rosicrucian manifestos, they're incorporating the philosophies of John Dee and Giordano Bruno. It's the philosophies of these two men that the Rosicrucian manifestos are coming out of. And a lot of big names in history go looking for these guys, but they, they never seem to be able to find them. Most famous is by Rene Descartes. He goes on a quest to try to find the Rosicrucians, but comes up empty. And and as as the Counter-Reformation really at this point seems to gather steam, it's, it's the, the Rosicrucian idea of this sort of proto, of, the, of this sort of mis- Protestant mystical secret society really comes into effect in 1717 with the f- formation of the Freemasons, which is sort of a reaction to the Jesuits almost. And then it's years later when you have the, the Masonic uh, lodges really becoming popular that it catches the eye of the Jesuits. And then you have the high degrees of, of of Freemasonry coming onto the scene in 1737, which is a reaction to Freemasonry. And this is where the, the Society of Jesus promotes these high degrees of Freemasonry. They really take shape and really, really become popular on the continent of Europe, more more so than in London and, and England and the surrounding environments of, of, of London. But they become very popular. And again, the high degrees are are a counter-reformation subterfuge, essentially designed to restore the Stuart pretenders, the Catholic Stuart side of the family, back to the throne of England. And it's really this, it's this 1737 uh, effort by the Jesuits that, I was just on another podcast talking about this, that it's really births every conspiracy out there known to man. I mean, it's it's this nexus between the Society of Jesus and the Freemasons that essentially births the Illuminati and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the Kennedy assassination and the Illuminati and, and 9-11 and you name it. I mean, it all comes out of this nexus between the Jesuits and the Freemasons. So you you will constantly, when you're looking at the history of the Masons and, 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 and the stuff, you're constantly dealing with this punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch, reaction, counter-reaction, things going on beneath the surface of history. It's very fascinating. And again, I wrote, you know, the Royal Arch of Enoch kind of delving into this sort of occult history that's going on beneath the surface of yeah, it's, a, it's a real shame that that these cinematographers tend to take such a superficial whack at these subjects I, I wish there was you know a game of thrones that dealt with you know these sort of groups rather than altogether you know fictional i'm sure with your eye you might be able to find some higher symbolic meaning behind a show like that but that's not what we're here to discuss, I must admit, I don't have a television in my apartment and I hardly watch movies, but the Rosicrucians, I've noticed in several of the Freemasonic books that I have, specifically the encyclopedic ones, the dictionary style ones, they mention Rosicrucian higher degrees. So was this something maybe that became fashionable later on and they you know, absorbed it into Freemasonry, and and now there's you know a Rosicrucian degree and a Rosicrucian order, but you know, not to say that there's an uh, you know an original link that this group right. has been existing this whole time. But is it true that the Freemasons sort of uh, picked up the symbology of the Rosicrucians and and repurposed it? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think you're onto something there. I mean, uh, the, the, a lot a lot of the things that the Rosicrucians were promoting gets incorporated into Freemasonry. This whole idea of reformation, of 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 reform, of universal wisdom, of enlightenment. These are all doctrines that the Rosicrucians were promoting a hundred years before, or at least allegedly producing. The the problem with the Rosicrucians is no one seems to know if these guys even existed. I mean, the the the, the closest you'll find to a living, breathing Rosicrucian is a guy named Johann uh, and, uh, Valentinus Andre, who writes the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, which is one of the three Rosicrucian manifestos. The other two are the Fama and the Confessio. Um, he's as close as you will find to a living, breathing Rosicrucian. This, the, 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 the second other characters who flirt with it are characters like Robert Flood and Elias Ashmole. Uh, Ashmole is particularly critical because he was a Freemason. And in fact, he's one of the earliest initiates into Masonic lodges, a Masonic lodge in England. And he's a founder, one of the founders of the Royal Society. So Ajmo is, is, is uh, very critical in all this. It is clear that the Masons are incorporating Rosicrucianism into Masonic doctrine. That is irrefutable. And again, you know, where, where is, what, what, what is Rosicrucianism being born out, out of? It's, you know, John D. and Giordano Bruno, those are the two proto-Masonic, you know, Masonic Rosicrucian philosophers out there. I mean, you know, you know, Bruno is one of the guys who is promoting the art of memory as this hermetic art. Of course, it doesn't start out that way. And you have William Shaw in Scotland, Lalland, Scotland blatantly saying, I mean, he says in his writings, he's saying all Freemasons need to learn the art of memory. I mean, this is a clearly an occult nexus to Giordano Bruno um, and the Rosicrucians, you know, and again, which are being born out of the thought of these two men, Dean and Bruno. Later on, when you have um, the creation of the high degrees, and this is probably more in the United States than anywhere else, in, in, the, in the Scottish Rite, as it comes to be created in 1801 in, in Charleston, South Carolina, when the degrees are reorganized, they, they decide to pay homage to the Rosicrucians. And you do have these two degrees known as the Rose Croix degrees. I believe they're 15 and 16 in, 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 in the Scottish Rite. And it's just a way to pay homage to the Rosicrucians, which clearly Masonic thought uh, Masonic ethos does owe a certain degree of, you know, you know, gratitude towards because I mean you you will clearly see overlap between Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and modern day Freemasonry. But again, it's 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 a mysterious. I mean, any any encyclopedia or dictionary you have will inevitably mention the Rosicrucians in it. I mean, any discussion with you know, where you're getting into the history of Freemasonry, the Rosicrucians always inevitably come up, and they should, because it, it is it is something that, you know, Freemasonry does come out of. Yeah, yeah, and, and the history is so, so deep and, and goes back so far because there are so many influences and this sort of underground stream that carries this esoteric some would say even ancient wisdom from maybe even biblical times i mean hence the name of the book we're sort of focusing on here the the royal ark of enoch enoch being you know a biblical patriarch the book of enoch was uh, supposedly written in 350 bce and it was a hebrew text left out of the bible and left out of Hebrew scripture it wasn't rediscovered until 1773 of course, all of this is coming from your book, but if you could maybe 
fill in the blanks there and, and help people understand where this time anomaly or uh, time paradox, this historical anomaly that you write about where it seems that a Mr. Andrew Ramsey in almost like a prophetic way creates the rights of perfection and they're just so in sync with what's discovered in the book of Enoch. Have, have I said too much? Is there nothing to fill, <laughs> fill in the blanks? Can you help no, us no, understand? No, you're you're on the right track. It's more it's it's more in it's it's more of the rights coming out of Ramsey's oration. Yeah, this this is the main thesis of of the of the Royal Arch of Enoch is the Book of Enoch is is lost to Western civilization from around two three A D C E or whatever you pick Common Era A D uh, I'm gonna dominate to what you said 1773 when a guy named James Bruce returns from Ethiopia with uh, a couple copies three copies to be exact of the lost book of Enoch. I believe it keeps one, one goes to the Sorbonne. And of course the most famous copy goes to the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. This is the one that's eventually translated into English. I believe it's in 1821. The, the thesis that I present in the book is that there must've been a copy of this thing, or at least a, a summary of it floating around Europe somewhere because the, the, high degree Freemason, the high degrees of Freemasonry, which are born out of this oration given by this guy in 1731, Andrew Michael the Chevalier Ramsey, who you mentioned, the high degrees are born out of this oration. And it's important because this is where you get one of these, you know, with, within masonry. What, what, what happened is in, in 1717, when masonry comes on the map, which we've talked about, shortly thereafter, I believe it's in 1821, a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson writes the Constitutions of the Freemasons. And he gives, he lays out the bylaws and all this good stuff. But he gives this legendary history of Freemasonry, where he takes it all the way back to the Bible, you know, where, you know, the guys building the Tower of Babel were Freemasons. Then he gets into the Egyptian with the pyramids and the flooding of the Nile, you know, and how the measurement of the Nile improved geometry. And then into the Gothic cathedrals popping up in Europe during the Middle Ages. And, and this is the history of Freemason Freemasonry that he gives. Now, of course, this isn't you know, I mean, this is a legendary history. I mean, no one takes this as meaning, you know, this is Freemasonry. You know, I mean, this is a legendary history. In 1731, this guy named Michael Ramsey, who is a, a Jesuit sympathizer, he's a Jacobite. He's actually the tutor of Bonnie Prince Charlie. And again, this is his nexus to the Society of Jesus. He gives this famous oration where he chastises Anderson and he says, no, 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 no. He says, um, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with some of the things you're saying about masonry with geometry and this, that, and the other, he said. But he said masonry is really, doesn't come so much out of the Bible. He said it comes out of these mystery religions coming out of the Middle East that were transplanted from the Knights Templar, these Christian warrior monks being in the Middle East, in the, you know, during the Crusades, being in the Holy Land. They, they encountered these, you know, sort of remnants of the Osirian mystery religions, the Aleutian mysteries, the Mithraic mysteries, you know, and transported these remnants of these mystery schools back to Europe. And this is where Freemasonry comes from. It's, you know, the Orphic mysteries, the Osirian mysteries. You know, this is where Masonry comes from, these old ancient mystery religions. And his oration in 1731 sort of causes this split within Masonry, and it's out of this oration that the high degrees are born, which are which are produced as part of the counter-reformation by the Society of Jesus at this place called the College of Claremont to their end game is essentially to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England. And this one degree in particular called the Royal Arch of Enoch, which bears this bibli biblical patriarch's name, 
incorporates elements of one Enoch, which shouldn't be happening. You know, we, we were, according to mainstream history, one Enoch was lost to Western civilization at this time. We're talking the mid 1740s, 1750s. So what I posture in the book, what I speculate with in the book, is there was clearly a copy of the book out there that someone must have had access to. And of course, you know, there, there are several possible candidates for this. One could have been John Dee. That's certainly possible. He had an extensive library. There's evidence to suggest this with a man named Sir Walter Riley, of all things, in his History of the World. He hints at an astro- astro- astronomical book astronomic book, excuse me, in, in one Enoch, which it is, which, you know, well, how does he know this? You know, he could have learned it from John Dee. They were all involved with this sort of spy ring that uh, Walsingham was formulating at the time, was running at the time. Another likely candidate is a guy named Gillian Postel, who is John Dee's continental equivalent minus the angelic magic. And at some point in time, he's a Jesuit wannabe. He tries to join the Society of Jesus, but he ultimately doesn't. At one point in time, he's running around with this mysterious Ethiopian who who brings with him from Ethiopia a copy of the Book of Enoch. And it's very possible that Postel either copied it or made notes about it. Um, and again, he's a, Jesu- he's a huge Jesuit sympathizer, so he's a very likely candidate for this. So the book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, puts forth these this this hypothesis that, you know, this historical anomaly that there clearly must have been a copy or at least a detailed summary of one Enoch floating around Europe, you know, and being relied upon when these high degrees of Freemasonry were generated, created at the College of Claremont. The other reason why this is, you know, really critical is when you begin to look into this, it is really from this one particular high degree, the Royal Arch of Enoch, that so much of the philosophy and ritual symbolism is that the creation of the United States is coming out of. That's really critical to understand. You have Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and then you have this one high degree, the Royal Arch, and so much of the symbolism and the philosophies that are being used to generate create the United States of America are not only coming out of the Blue Lodge, but are coming out of this one uh, high degree ceremonial, the Royal Arch of Enoch. Right. And it is fascinating, you know, that just this concept that the mystery schools would have survived through the dark ages, through the time when this information was being, you know, burned. And I'm sure it was, it was more than just the Catholic church to blame you know we have the islamic countries who are probably equally against this sort of information at a certain point but as you said you know the middle east had all these ideas we know about this sort of age of arabic magnificence i don't know if that's the proper historical term but this age of innovation in this area where all of these you know ideas that we see in the renaissance possibly you know were were inspired but i want to take it back to john d because you do write in the book something really really fascinating it was the institutionalized it was institutionalized in the Elizabethan marriage of hermetical, occult, Kabbalistic, and Neoplatonic idealism and symbolism through an alliance between court culture and imperial policy in which learning assumed both imperial, empirical and esoteric missiologies. This esoteric policy formulation is clearly echoed in the works of Dr. John D., the Virgin Queen's court astrologer. It can also be found in Edmund Spencer's *The Fairy Queen*, where the Church of English is transform—sorry, the Church of England 
is transformed into a Kabbalistic temple. And then this sort of leads me to my question. Such events propositioned a new religion of heliocentric imperial power through enterprise, Lockean political theory, and Newtonian physics as the religion of modernity. As such, Masonic law became an embryo of world civilization. So clearly you're seeing, you know, this stream from the ancient world to this time period and then an incubator for this modern world that we're living in and a lot of the ideas that we take for granted the perspective certainly that we take for granted at least the average person who for the most part unfortunately isn't really aware of this history you know this materialistic scientism that we all take for granted was born from these people, so to speak, the, the Royal Society. And some people argue that maybe they were part of the Rosicrucians. And then obviously the Freemasons. I heard you discuss on a, a previous podcast how Masonry sort of allowed for this new idea of universalism to flourish. Because like you said in the prior portion of our conversation, these Freemasons were deists. They didn't, you know... They weren't prejudiced against their fellow brothers, whether they believed in uh, God A or God B, so long as you believed in God, the God. Absolutely. That's just one of the reasons why masonry becomes very popular is because it, it doesn't it doesn't preclude any religious or, you know, any religion. As long as you the only thing it does preclude is atheism. You have to believe in a supreme being. If you, you know, that's one of the requirements. You can't be an atheist to join Freemason, to join a Masonic Lodge. You have to believe in a supreme being. And this is one of the reasons uh, why it becomes incredibly popular. Again, this is also one of, the, one of the same reasons why it becomes unpopular with certain groups, most notably the Roman Catholic Church, who takes a real issue with this. But no, th th there is there is a lot of Hermetic and Neoplatonic and, you know, Rosicrucian threads in Freemasonry. And the, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why I, I find it so interesting is because um, so much, there's so much overlap with it. I mean, you could find, you know, you will find elements of Kabbalah in, in Freemasonry and in Neoplatonism, astrology, the ancient mystery religions, Gnosticism, you know, some, some people twine Gnosticism with, I more take it towards a Gnostic thread, but some people will say it's, it's an, it's, it's more alchemical than it is Gnostic. That's fine. I kind of, there is overlap. I mean, they do run parallel. You know, you'll find elements of, of mystical Christianity of, you know, like I said, Kabbalism, of Sufism, Sufism, which is mystical Islam. You will find um, so many theologies and, and occult doctrine, you know, in, in Freemasonry. And it's really one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I love writing about it. I find it so interesting. And it really has, especially in the context of the United States, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, what I say in the book, it's, you, you know, the United States is essentially the world's first Masonic Republic. And I stand by that. I made that statement 10 years ago, and I stand by it 10 years later. And I would just to add real quick, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very happy with the way the Royal Arch of Enoch came out. There are just a few tweaks I want to make, make to it. There was one thing I wanted to do was um, when, when I wrote Royal Arch of Enoch, I was actually planning another book on Freemasonry called Freemasonry in the Path to Babylon. It was a series of essays I wrote, but I, I, it, it didn't really work. It was, it was stuff that I kind of excised out of the Royal Arch. It's not a whole lot. And one of the things I... I, I come to conclude over the years is this material probably will read better if I put it back in the Royal Arch rather than trying to do a separate book. So that's, again, one of my one of my uh, motivations for doing this. I think it'll help clear, fill in a little bit, maybe more of the backstory. 
But no, it's, it's to me at any rate, I only could speak for Robert Sullivan. It's a very fascinating subject. And, it, and like I said, it overlaps so many different theologies and occult principles. It's, it's just such an interesting topic to me. Absolutely. And I, like I said earlier, I'm excited to see what you add to this because it's already, you know, in my opinion, very, very informative and, and exactly what I'm looking for. And that's kind of why I'm hoping to switch gears a little bit here and maybe focus in on American history because the, you know, the, the global history of Freemasonry is such a, a vast subject. And I encourage anyone who's interested to check out your Royal Ark of Enoch. But there's a couple characters that you mentioned that I had never heard before. A certain George DeWitt Clinton, who seems to take a, a big role in the United States and sort of establishing this same policy that we were sort of talking about just then where, you know, all ideas are open and, and really it seems like the only way this new nation could get the start that it did. You know, it, we needed people to cooperate with one another, especially directly after, you know, defeating the, the, the queen and the king and, and becoming our own country. We needed that sort of uh, unity. But DeWitt Clinton, I don't know if he's, he, he might be someone who lived after the revolution. I don't, I don't think he was alive during the revolution. But can you tell us a little bit about him and the role he played? Yeah, he, he, he is absolutely critical to, to understanding the Masonic influence in the United States. He's the guy, the guy who picks up the mantle of uh, the Masonic mantle from people like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and really, and really is the guy who transforms the nation into this Masonic Republic. He, he is a, he is the creator of the two party system in the United States. He's the reason we have two major political parties and he was a Jeffersonian Republican, but he hung around with all the federalists and what, what he he, he, he is, I don't know if you've ever heard in your travels, this term called the Colombian Illuminati. He, he is the guy who was allegedly in charge of this thing. And what, what he was doing was he was using these high degrees of Freemasonry, most notably the Royal Arch of Enoch. And you have to understand what's going on inside the inside that ritual. I mean, it's a huge story. It's a long story. I, I won't, I'll try to summarize it as quickly as I can. But the Royal Arch of Enoch in that ritual, the, the Mason discovers what was lost in the Blue Lodge. In the Blue Lodge, the this is degrees one, two, and three. This character known as Hiram Abiff possesses this thing called the Tetragrammaton, which is the secret name of God. Um, and if you're familiar with Masonic lore, it's through the correct pronunciation of this word that all learning is made possible. Hiram Abiff has and he loses it. He's murdered. He's martyred. And 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 when he gets killed, the word is lost. You know, it's called the lost word of a master mason. You fast forward to the Royal Arch ceremonial in the high degrees, the word is found. Um, it's found in the subterranean vault. It's If you want to see it on screen, it's the National Treasure movie. But at any rate, Clinton was using this high degree, this Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial, symbolically to mean that if you if you were a Mason who possessed this secret name, not only did this sort of make you a citizen priest king yourself, it gave you this express warrant to rule over other people. And because of this, because you had Federalists who were exalted to the Royal Arch and you had Jeffersonian Republicans who were exalted to the Royal Arch, the way Clinton was working behind the scenes with both groups to formulate policy, to get the Erie Canal built, to get Union College built, and sort of, you know, 
it was it was Clinton who was basically creating the country behind the scenes, working with both political parties behind closed doors. This is ultimately exposed in the 1820s by something known as the William Morgan Affair, where the American public learned that learned for the first time that there was this Illuminati uh, cabal, we call it a deep state, if you will, working behind you know duly elected government. People were learning that people like Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States, were taking orders from this guy named DeWitt Clinton, you know, who was mayor and governor of New York. And because of this, there was this huge backlash against Freemasonry. It, it almost went, it, it almost disappeared. One of the reasons it didn't was because Andrew Jackson, one of the who was president and became president shortly thereafter, didn't cave into it. And Masonry at that point in time distanced it. It was it was perceived as a sort of this black magic cabal. And Masonry survived it by saying, hang one time out. We have nothing to do with, you know, the occult or hermeticism. We're essentially a, a fraternal order that helps widows and orphans. That's it. It takes a huge hit. Many Grand Lodges close. I mean, it's a form of cancel culture, as it will. You know, there are teachers who refuse to teach the children of Freemasons. There is a, a, like I said, a huge backlash against Freemasonry. One of the things that comes out of this is a rea- one of the reactions to this anti-Masonic, you know, attitude of the country is Skull and Bones, where William Huntington Russell and William Alfonso Taft, Taft William Howard Taft's great-grandfather, formed this Masonic-like Illuminati secret society to combat anti-Masonry called Skull and Bones at Yale University. Um, that's one of the uh, counter effects of anti-Masonry. And of course, one of the people writing at the time was Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote, writes this little short story called The Cast of Amontillado. This is a retelling of the anti-Masonry, where Fortunato is William Morgan, who disappears forever, gets bricked up you know, by the Freemasons' trial at the end. This is what happened with Morgan. He was hauled off across the uh, Canadian line by the Freemasons. He was taken out of jail, and he disappeared. No one knows what happened to him. Even to this day, knows no one knows what happened. And of course, this is retold by Poe in the uh, cast of Amontillado. So, um, yeah, DeWitt Clinton is a huge, incredibly important person, a uh, historical figure to understanding the Masonic influence of the United States, you know, the influence of Freemasonry upon the United States. That's completely irrefutable and something I very much document in, in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And well said. I'm very aware of the william morgan controversy and and you know i would (laughs) understand why people might be afraid but considering the erie canals it seemed like it it people at least in government who saw this higher plan saw this vision of of rebuilding america to sort of fit this mold that was cast in the old world i mean a canal is a very sort of Egyptian thing is that any you know part of DeWitt's sort of higher ideals for the Erie Canal was he thinking about this in metaphysical terms or was it purely an industrial motivation? Oh no, the whole thing of the Erie Canal signifies Masonry's westward expansion. You know, the the, the Erie Canal is dedicated in a royal arch uh, ritual. Um, it's a Masonic undertaking. It's probably the third largest, or maybe the second largest Masonic architectural civic engineering project in the country. I guess the federal district would be number one. And then maybe, you know, two or three, you could probably interchange with the Erie Canal Union College. I mean, they're right there. They're, I mean, they're right there under DeWitt Clinton's aegis, you know, in Albany, New York. I mean, he's the governor of, of New York. The, the, the Union College template is is the Royal Arch of Enoch ritual. The Erie Canal is dedicated in a real Royal Arch ceremonial signifying Masonry's westward expansion. Of course, this is what the canal 
block is. It's rising and sinking water. And of course, you know, if you read the old Masonic charges, this is where, you know, what, what do they say? The improvements of geometry come from, where Hermes and Enoch, you know, Thoth, you know, were measuring the the flooding of the Nile. This is, you know, Anderson says it point blank. The flooding of the Nile is birthed geometry. You know, the measurement of the Nile is where geometry comes from, you know, originates. So, and this is, of course, what a lock system does. It's rising and sinking water. So the whole thing is, you know, sort of this quasi you know, Egyptian symbolism, uh, you know, under, under, uh, you know, being blessed in this royal arch uh, ceremonial. So, you know, the whole thing is uh, quintessentially Masonic. And again, it's, you know, when, when you're dealing with the Erie Canal, you know, you know, you, you know, when you're dealing with the Masonic, you know, engineering plans for the new world, for the new country, I guess the federal district would probably be number one, then two or three, you could probably interchange out with the Erie Canal or Union College is connected to New York. You can maybe throw in there the, you know, design of Baltimore with the uh, Basilica and the Washington Monument there. But no, you know, one, one of the things I document in the book is how so much of the country, you know, is is Masonic from start to finish. Right. And I've been to Albany. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, I mean, maybe this doesn't fall under the auspices of the Freemasons, but what's up with that giant half <laughs> half egg that they have down there in Albany? Oh, I'm not familiar with it. I'd have to see it. Oh, man. I'll send you a picture via email. It is strange. I drove up there last summer, and uh, a lot of great architecture there. But that one particular architect piece, you know, it's like nothing I've ever seen. Apparently, it's some sort of amphitheater or, you know, stadium inside. But it just looks like a giant egg on a sort of golf tee, and uh, half of the egg is is lopped off. So it's just sort of a strange thing. I've heard other uh, guests who have seen it describe it as like a sort of UFO, alien sort of symbol, but I don't know uh, how realistic that is. But speaking of symbolism, you know, we have three of the, war, you know, seven marvels of the ancient world. That's not the right word for it. Wonders of the ancient world that are replicated here in the United States. I don't believe we mentioned them yet, but we have the Statue of Liberty, the House of the Temple, and then the George Washington Masonic Memorial. And now is that in Baltimore, the George Washington Masonic Memorial, or is that the one in Washington, D.C.? It's in neither. It's, 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 you're right. You have the, the Statue of Liberty, of course, and you have the House of the Temple, which is the Museum of Heliconarsis. And then, of course, the George Washington Masonic Memorial is in Alexandria, um, okay. Virginia, which is which is a remake. Of course, that's why it's in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a remake, a lighthouse in Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah, Alexandria from one Alexandria to another. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, when when you're dealing with, again, with Masonic symbolism, one of the things that they love to draw on, you know, is is Egypt symbolism. You know, you you'll find that replete all over the place. You know, this whole idea, like I said, if you read Anderson's Constitutions, one of the things that's critical within Masonry is geometry. And if you read Anderson's Constitution, I'll tell you, geometry was born out of this idea of measuring the Nile's flooding. So you inherently have a lot of Egypt symbolism, you know, coming into Freemasonry. And of course, you have the uh, third degree ritual, which is, you know, the retelling of the what you would want to call the dying, dying yet resurrected solar god man motif, you know, which you'll find in, in of course, you know, the Aleutian mysteries, the Orphic mysteries. Of course, this is Osiris, 
in, in the Egyptian mysteries. They call him Hiram Abiff in Freemasonry. You know, and of course, you'll find the parallel with Jesus Christ, of course. That's, you know, hard to miss. But it's, it's you know, you know it, 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 one of the things, like I said earlier, that Masonry makes it so fascinating is it draws on so many different occult philosophies and ancient mysteries and Rosicrucianism and Christianity and Islam and Judaism. It's, it's, it's really multifaceted. Absolutely. And, you know, these works, you know, specifically the ones we mentioned and, and all the other amazing pieces of architecture and art that are all around the world have, but specifically in the United States, have become, you know, primary fascination for me. And, and one thing that really stood out when we're talking about this Jungian synchronicity is I'm actually from a town, two, three towns over, you know, a couple miles away is where they quarried the granite to build the base of the Statue of Liberty. And uh, sure. and that's in Guilford, <clears throat> Connecticut. And, you know, they call it Satcham's Head over there. And uh, it's just interesting, you know, the, the interplay of, of Native American and colonial forces. You know, you mentioned Skull and Bones being sort of avenging the Masons, which I had never heard that angle before. It's very, very compelling. And I'd love to know more. You mentioned Union College. You mentioned DeWitt Clinton. I don't think we've touched on the District of Columbia. You call it the City of the Sun in your book. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of the general public are involved in these rituals? For instance, if I'm you know, walking in Washington, D.C., or am I, if I'm, you know, going along the Erie Canal, am I, in a sense, participating in a sort of subconscious way in in Masonic ritual? Yeah, probably. This ties into something known as the art of memory, where, where by, by walking through the symbolic are by walking around uh, symbolic architecture, you're inside a memory temple, as it were. And the the images that you're seeing, probably more so in Washington, D.C. than the Erie Canal, are designed to conjure certain vibes in your or, or throw off certain vibes and and tweak with your subconscious mind. It's, it's something known as the art of, it's, it's a very arcane subject, but, but essentially the whole idea between, well, with things like Washington, D.C., and this is what's discussed in The City of the Sun, this utopian uh, story written by this uh, Dominican uh, friar named Tomoso Campanella, is, is that, it's, is that the, these images, these somewhat pagan Christian images and architecture by witnessing them, they they toy with your subconscious mind. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, the idea is that by by interacting with them, whether you're just walking through them or seeing them, that they are connecting to your subconscious mind and bringing you closer to the divine. That's the idea behind it. Again, it comes out of this idea of what's called the art of memory, which is a highly complex a system of mnemonics that that certain images, especially images related to the stars and the pagan gods and by default Christianity um, somehow just by seeing them connect you to a higher Godhead and, and are soul elevating. Now critics will say it's the other way. 
critics will say it's a form of mind. This is debatable. You can go either way with it, but that's sort of the idea. So when you ask me like, yeah, if you're in Washington, DC, yeah, you, the idea is that you're in sort of this sacred memory space and that the images and the architecture are designed to trigger certain things that you may not be consciously aware of. That's the ultimate aim for this. And one one of the things you'll find is, you know, one of the ways that they can do this is just through the architecture itself, just through the imagery. This can be done with astral alignments, with with cornerstone laying ceremonies. And and the whole idea behind this is you're drawing down the sympathies of of the celestial bodies, whether it be a planet or a constellation or exodiac or a zodiac, and investing it into into your architecture. You're sort of drawing down us, you know, the, the astral energies, uh, these these positive sympathies and investing them into your architecture. So so, so this is one, one way this is done. So yeah, the, the whole the whole idea behind this is that you're in sort of this sacred memory temple designed to tweak with your conscious and subconscious mind. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Because that's that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly where and I don't want to call it a suspicion because it's really more of an interest, but when I'm looking around my own area, you know, being in Connecticut, trying to examine what the minds were, you know, where the minds were that built these pieces of architect, architecture that laid the, the city plan and all that. And it's very fascinating. Does the, the day that, you know, let's say when the Erie Canal was finished they have their royal arc ceremony is time taken into factor like thinking you know obviously they align things with you know days like saint john the baptist day you mentioned that in the prior part of our conversation but you know do they actually consider like this a birthday for this certain piece of architecture a building and 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 draw up a sort of astrological chart for that building or plan yeah Right. I mean, I mean, this, the, the Erie Canal, the dedication would have co- occurred at the beginning of it, not the end of it. It was the uh, launching of it was when the Royal Arch ceremonial occurred. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a great question. I've actually never looked at the timestamp of the ceremonial. If you told me there wasn't some sort of astral alignment going on in the heavens above, that would not surprise me, you know, some sort of nexus to Eridanus or something like that. That would not at all surprise me. I mean, there's a couple I could give you off the top of my head. One is the Supreme Court building was dedicated on October 13th, 1932, October 13th, Sun and Libra, the astral scales of justice. So by doing it on October 13th, you're drawing down the powers of the, the heavenly scales of justice and investing them into your Supreme Court building. So that would be a good example of it. It's a great question. I've actually never looked at the, maybe I'll have to do it. Maybe I'll have to take a look and see when the Erie Canal was dedicated, what day, what day it occurred on. It would not at all surprise me if there wasn't some sort of alignment going on or Eridanus was on the rise and ascending, uh, something like that. That would, that would not at all surprise me. In fact, it would surprise me if it wasn't the other way. I mean, I'd be learned to I'd be surprised if there wasn't something going on, you <laughs> well, know, you know, so, yeah. Young, young, again, you, out of all the days that you could have picked, you picked a day, only one day away from my birthday. I was born October 11th, so that's interesting. But Iridanus, that name, I mean, maybe I've read it and I'm just not connecting the dots as far as how it's spelled, but can you explain Iridanus and why you think that would be related to the Erie Canal? Yeah, I'd have to go look. Isn't that the isn't that the Astral River? You know, the Astral right. River okay. in the sky. That makes yeah, a lot so of that sense. would, of course... 
Yeah, that would connect to the canal. Libra would, of course, connect to, you know, the scales of justice would, of course, connect to your uh, Supreme Court building. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you, you, you get into a lot of sacred architecture, sacred geometry. But the one the one thing I would say, I mean, this is just, you know, my my my, my research. There's a lot of people out there. I'm not going to name names, but believe this is completely evil and satanic. My research has led me to believe the otherwise, that it's actually a form of divinity. But you know, as a lawyer, I could probably maybe argue it a little, a little bit both ways. The one, the one thing that, that's always criticized with this is there's no transparency. It's just you know the Masons do it and they, they you know align these buildings and this, that, and the other, and there's no transparency. They just go ahead and do it. And of course, people years later find this out, and there's always this uh, sense that you know this is this evidence of this grandiose satanic conspiracy going on, which it really isn't the case. It's 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 the Masons, the architects and and, and the people doing this are basically using doctrines coming out of the hermetic tradition, you know, which are divine. I mean, that's that that's the whole idea. It's 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 a it's a form of divinity to nation build around. Um I, I think a lot of these guys would be doing somersaults in their graves if they were to learn that, you know, people like Latrobe and Mills and Hoban and, and Lon Font in Washington, people like that, were people were reinterpreting as being demonic or diabolical of some hand. I, 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 my my research has led me to believe that it's the exact opposite; that it's a form of enlightenment, as it were. But you know, being a lawyer, I can see both sides of the argument. Well, and that's very fair. I I definitely don't like to take sides. I like to take that same approach and be objective and. I, I see the the danger, at least in a position like mine, where you know I'm not in any group. You know, if I <laughs> say one thing, you know, without explaining that it's my opinion, people are quick to jump on in the comments. Not that I care, anyways. But enough about that. You mentioned the memory palace and this concept of invoking ideas in the subconscious, and in in your book that we've been talking about, the Royal Ark of Enoch. You have a couple uh, very interesting pieces of examples of Masonic symbolism, and one that's pretty close to home for myself and, and you as well, the Keystone State. You know, I go to Pennsylvania every now and then. I have some friends down there. There's a lot of mystical, interesting things that I've seen in Pennsylvania. But if you could, maybe before we uh, totally wrap up here, Explain a little bit about what a keystone is and why Pennsylvania got the name the Keystone State. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you will find this, you know, you will find Masonic symbolisms amongst many of the college, lo especially the early ones, the college logo, seals, state nicknames, New York being the Empire State, you know, things like that. And Pennsylvania is a great example. Right, a key a keystone creates an art. It's, it's the stone that the builders reject in the Bible. This is why Jesus calls himself you know, the, the the stone that the builders rejected. The reason the builders rejected is because a keystone is neither square or rectangular. And the, so the builders don't know what it is. And But of course, a keystone creates the archway. It's the center stone right above. And what it, what it does is it binds all the other stones to it. It creates, it, it brings all the other stones together. And of course, if you know the nation, the history of our nation, the, the 13 colonies were brought together, were bound together into one United States of America in the city of brotherly love in Pennsylvania. First with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, second with the adoption of the United States Constitution. This is where 13 independent states became one royal arm and the state that held them all together, that bound them, was Pennsylvania. Of course, this is why it's called the Keystone State. 
And you will, of course, find this in, in Washington, D.C., where in the federal district, you have the Pythagorean theorem, the 47th proposition of Euclid embedded right there in the city center between the White House, the Washington obelisk, and the domed Capitol building. And of course, the two elected branches are connected by Pennsylvania Avenue, the Keystone State. It's, a, it's royal arch symbolism. And again, this, this ties into this idea of these ancient, it's an ancient memory device recalling it's Kabbalah, it's the name of God. It's, 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 it's drawing down the name of God, which is, of course, what's going on inside the royal arch ceremonial. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's very occult-laden, it's very esoteric, and it, it's designed to be profound. Unfortunately, in the world we live in today, you know, it's, it's probably more of a subconscious reaction. When, when, you, when you become cognizant of this stuff, and this was one of my motivations of writing the book was to sort of present this material that, you know, just to show people how deep the rabbit hole went with a lot of this stuff. A lot of people weren't even aware of this. But, you know, you know again, when you're dealing with the United States of America, whether it be the colleges, especially the early ones, the logos, the state nicknames, you know, there is this Masonic influx, influence upon this stuff. And again, it, it, it ties into this whole notion of creating, you know, this Masonic Republic, and we're going to use these these sort of pagan, astral, divine image logos, what have you, to create, you know, memory temples, to create memory images, which are designed to be very profound. Unfortunately, maybe some of them are forgotten today. Hopefully, my book will revive many of them. Absolutely. And I am, like I said several times, I'm, I'm researching my local area and, you know, being in Connecticut, not too far away from New Haven, Skull and Bones obviously is a, a primary interest, not just because of what's said about it in books and online, but because I've had some life experiences that have taught me about it way before I ever really uh, found anyone else talking about it online or, or anywhere else. But when I'm studying the early history of New Haven, I find this really curious picture of the plan for new haven right and and new haven being basically the word new heaven and this nine square grid that the original city was built around and you see in this sort of wood cut relief or i don't know exactly how they made this sort of the what is the right word the compass sorry the compass coming down from a hand in the clouds right so there Although the, the founders of New Haven were not Masons, could not have been Masons because, you know, New Haven was founded in the 1600s prior to Masonry, there is, sure. was this sort of idea of a, design, a divine architect, you know, very clearly in the, you know, imagery there. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you have learned about like the significance of a nine square or maybe why they would have done that? Sure. Well, the number nine is is highly significant, both within the occult and Christian Kabbalism. And this would be Kabbalah spelled with a C, you know, in, in, in that there's, you know, it, it goes into the world of the occult. In, in the world of the occult, there are three worlds. There's the mundane reality that we live in currently that, you know, this is our reality. Then there's, of course, the stellar celestial realms, which are guarded by the hermetic governors. And then beyond those are is Kabbalah, the Sephirah, the, the hermetic spheres, or excuse me, the Kabbalistic spheres, the Sephirah. In Christian, in Judaism, there's 30, well, there's 10, 10 Sephirah and there's uh, 22 paths. In, in Islam, the, there are nine dignities of God. And of course, in Christianity, there are nine celestial hierarchies. In royal arch Freemasonry, the name of God is concealed 
beneath nine arches. This is why in Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, there are seven levels in heaven, seven, or excuse me, nine levels in hell, nine levels in heaven. So the number nine would have uh, deep significance here. It, it's a form of Christian Kabbalism, probably off the top of my head. I haven't seen the plan, but it would it's probably reflecting the celestial hierarchies if, if I had to make my guess. And of course, like you said, it's called New Heaven. So th this is the, the celestial realms guarded by the seraphim and the cherubim existing beyond the uh, stellar spheres, as it were. So that, off the top of my head, that's probably what it's alluding to. And I have seen an article, actually, that goes into just the plans itself that compares it to the Temple of Solomon, which I know is a big part of the legend of the Freemasons, obviously Hiram Abiff working in the Temple of Solomon, creating the Temple of Solomon. But is there possibly a connection, maybe an esoteric one to this idea of rebuilding the Temple of Solomon that could have existed within, you know, these sort of, and they weren't extreme, but they were, you know, idealistic. They're different Christians than the type that stayed in Europe. You know, they were sort of Calvinists and Zionists. They definitely had ideas to make a new Jerusalem. But do you think that this idea of building, rebuilding the Temple of Solomon would have existed in the minds of people before Freemasonry? Oh, sure. I mean, it, it runs parallel with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even the works of people like Emanuel Schwettenberg, you know, he was calling for the New Jerusalem. He was a Christian mystic. I mean, he was very popular amongst amongst even Orthodox Christians. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's always I forget the name of the work, but um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of references. They're, they're, Christian mystics are always talking about this parallel between rebuilding the Temple of Solomon, rebuilding the New Jerusalem, things of that nature. I forget the names of the authors that are escaping me right now, but one of the biggies was Emanuel Schwedenborg. He gets into this with, with a lot of his writings. So, yeah, I mean, you, you could definitely find an esoteric influence with this within mainstream Christianity. And. I'm reminded of a very, very pressing question that I thought of when you were describing the celestial alignments and how that's taken into consideration and, and buildings are, are planned to, to get those celestial sympathies is a phrase you used. And I, I appreciate that. I've, I haven't used that phrase before, but it, it conveys the meaning really well. But I'm wondering if, you know, given the there are people out there who use these sort of divining rods, water witchers, sometimes they're called. We've had them on the show talking about maybe divining where ley lines are and things like that. Is that taken into consideration? Because I have heard certain authors mention groups within the Freemasonic order, like the Order of Cincinnati and the Green Dragon Society. And they, you know, explain that these groups were keeping track of where ley lines were and you know one big ley line that we can see pretty much goes through every major city on the east coast from washington dc to boston and all the way down to teotihuacan and then up across to stonehenge so when you see these kind of uh you know geographical alignments it makes you wonder again like is this uh planned is this you know thought is there forethought to this yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is what's called geomancy is, is the rough term you're looking for. And yeah, I mean, the alignment of buildings with ley lines and other sacred architecture and other architecture 
Absolutely. There's on, um, there's a ley line that goes through England on the Isle of Dogs. There's a stone circle there in one of the parks. Uh, and this is one of the circles where it's alleged that John Dee was summoning, summoning his angelic, uh, you know, entities, these angels from the super celestial realms. Uh, there's a ley line that runs right through that that cuts through Queen Elizabeth's birthing a birth home. And then if you run north with it, one of Nicholas Hawkmore's churches, he was a very famous Freemason, sits on the ley line. And what makes it even more particularly interesting it's not it, it's uh saint i think it's saint anne's limehouse it, it doesn't actually sit on the way the entrance runs right by the ley line the ley line actually sits on this pyramid that he built out in front of it and only nick hawksman was a huge freemason I mean, he's right there with Christopher Wren, people like that. He built a pyramid on this ley line that says the wisdom of Solomon on it. And this runs through the stone circle on the Isle of Dogs. And this is, of course, alleged where John Dee summoned his angels. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the 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 um, the the linkage of architectural projects with ley lines, with sacred architecture, with sacred sites, with the stars. Yeah, th- this is all coming out of the world of Hermeticism as above, so below. And uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is all well known within Freemasonry. Excellent. Yeah. And it is helpful to have someone like yourself here to verify that when there is so much speculation, sometimes coming from very extreme points of view on the internet, you know, you never know who to, to really trust, but uh, past guest, Peter Shampoo, I, although not being a Freemason is a stonemason. And one of the things that he explained to me was this energy that was captured within the rocks and as he was working with the stone there was like this memory you know you use the word well he used the term like mimetic energy flowing through the rock and i wonder if that is somehow esoterically considered in freemasonry the the animism the power of the stone itself even maybe down to the choice and what stone goes where. I mean, I mentioned before how this certain granite was used uh, from an area where I live for the Statue of Liberty's base. They've also used that stone for the Lincoln Memorial. They've used it in Washington, D.C. How much of, of this sort of like animistic spirit of the stone is considered in these projects? Yeah, I mean, I, it's not something I've done a deep study of, but I mean, I know, for instance, that it is taken into consideration. I remember reading that when they did the Washington Monument, the obelisk in in in, in Washington D.C., one of the stones one of the stones was given to to be used in the in the building of it was given to the uh, Masons by the Pope in Rome, and they took the stone and smashed it and dumped it in the Potomac River. They said it's negative energy, you know, it's it's we don't want this essentially. You know, the country is founded on this idea of you know separating church from state, and you know you know we we didn't want anything from the Vatican to be incorporated into this thing. So there are things like that that has happened. But you know you know I mean the 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 selection of the materials, yeah, I mean there could be mystical value to it. It's it's not anything that I've ever really examined, you know. But I mean I can talk to you about the alignments and stuff like that. But the actual materials itself, outside of that one example, that's probably a little beyond my scope. Well, I appreciate you stepping outside of that you know, and, and answering a question despite it, I appreciate it. Cause yeah, the, like I said, there are many, many opinions and, and voices and not a lot of primary sources for this type of information. So it's good to have someone like you here on the show, Robert, I really appreciate this conversation. I know you said you have to go very soon. If you have any more time, that would be great. But if not, I would love to have you back on 
in the future after I've read more of the Book of Enoch, if you couldn't tell. I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, and and I'm excited that there's a revised edition coming out. But yeah, I would love to, to have you back on again. Can you give the listeners one more time your links, your website, sure. where they can find you, and, and what books they can follow up with you on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. It was my pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. My, my family doesn't actually think I'm crazy, but uh, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure to be here. So I, we can do this I apologize for not asking. Sometimes I, I do ask, sometimes I don't, but it's, it's good to know that they don't think you're crazy. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> No, no. Well, it was my pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We could do a return appearance. So that's that's no problem. My, my, my thing is, I, I'd talk to you all day if I could. Usually, as I get in, as I've gotten older, I'm 50 now. And unfortunately, after about an hour and a half, my voice starts and, you know, it's it's no good anyway. So, you know, I can only usually go about an hour and a half. I could do two hours, but I'd probably need about a 20 minute break in there at, at that point. So so we, we could call it a day and I certainly will come back. That's no problem. Um my, my my website is my name. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV, and that's my website. It's robertwsullivaniv.com. IV for the Roman numerals, of course, the letter I, the letter V. robertwsullivaniv.com. There's links to buy the books there. There are I have five books out there available on all the major online resellers, excuse me, online sellers. You know, Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. You can get the print edition. You can get the ebook. Uh, the ebooks are, of course, uh, much more cheaper. You know, if you want that, you know, save a tree and get the ebook. But if you want the print edition, that's available as well. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Or my website again, robertwsullivaniv.com. There's information about links to purchase the books. Information about shows that I'm doing, radio shows, p- podcasts. This show will be posted there, of course. It's a very easy site to navigate. Again, robertwsullivaniv.com. Links to buy the books. Information about me news and updates of course so go there check it out it's a very easy site to uh, navigate and again thank you mark um, i will gladly come on again we could talk movies if you want to just continue the conversation with freemasonry that's not a problem at all and i would just point out at the end that the the these new revised editions they're still a while away i mean you know, like I said, the pack with the devil one will probably be in the next couple of months, but the Royal Arch, they're probably at least a year or two away. So the other books will remain for sale. Um, they will not be taken offline. And when the new book, when the new editions come out, they will just supplant the books that are out there. This won't be like a third edition or fourth edition. They will just uh, take the place of the books that are out there. And again, they're not they're not anything major rewrites or anything. They will probably include some new information, especially the Royal. But but like you said, I am happy with the way the books came out. This will just correct some mistakes, correct some errata that, that have persisted in the books um, over the years. And that's all. And again, thank you, Mark, for having me on. My family thinks I'm crazy. It was my pleasure to be here. And uh, anytime you want to have me back on, just reach out to me and we'll do this all over again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Robert. And thank you to everyone listening. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now. episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast i'm doing another last minute extended outro here and i just spoke to robert sullivan today so this will be a uh, straight to press episode no delay whatsoever um we didn't record a video version of this show 
it was early in the day. I just woke up. Um, but it was a great conversation. I mean, you just listen to it. You tell me what you think in the comments, in the Telegram chat. Let me know what you think. But I enjoyed speaking with Mr. Sullivan, and I plan on having him back to go deeper and discuss some of the intricacies of the Freemasonic symbolism. Because although I am not a Freemason, although I have no plans of ever being a Freemason, I find it a fascinating topic. And who better to ask than a guy like Robert Sullivan? Not only is he a Freemason, but he's also a lawyer. And as he stated, and I trust that he's honest when he says this, he's objective. He's not, you know... He's not some kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, cleanup crew, Masonic historian who's erasing, you know, actual history and, and only giving you legend. No, he's he's pretty clear on what's legend and what's actual factual. And I appreciate that from anyone. Third degree, 32 degree, even 33rd degree. Although I don't know if we would get a 33rd degree Mason on the show if you know of any Sure, why not? Uh, but speaking of Masons, we're going to have a conversation with someone who doesn't generally advertise the fact that they're a Freemason, although he certainly wasn't hiding it uh, in the video portion of this conversation, which has been on Rockfin for a week or so now. Uh, I spoke with Micah Dank, and I had no clue he was a Freemason uh, until I saw this big necklace that he was wearing, and I asked him, live in this extended outro so you get to hear that in just a moment Micah and I have become friends I've actually had dinner with Micah once while in Long Island so I know Micah I think he's an interesting guy he's insightful he never told me he was a mason up until now you think you'd know that <laughs> meeting a person but uh but it's fair, you know. But it was a, it was an interesting, interesting conversation. Always great talking to Micah. And uh, if you didn't know, I am mentioned in the first couple pages of one of his books, the Into the Rabbit Hole series. So be sure to check out Micah Dank's books. And speaking of books, be sure to check out Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth's website. The link is in the description. The Royal Ark of Enoch was a fascinating read. Like I said, I must admit, haven't made it all the way through the 800 pages. Uh, it was the first ebook that I've read in a long time. I didn't want to wait for the book to be delivered, so I just read it on my phone. And uh, although it was a little more, it wasn't more difficult or anything like that. It was just a, it was just a switch from what I'm used to. But I did like how I could just screenshot certain portions of the book and uh, they were readily at hand for today's conversation. Uh, but he doesn't just talk about Freemasonic history, folks. He's actually well known for his breakdown of cinema symbolism. You may have seen Robert Sullivan on other podcasts breaking down various movies. Uh, if you're an astute listener of the show, if you've been listening for a while... You know that uh, I'm not really the biggest movie watcher, although I did. There was a time in my life where I enjoyed movies and I watched movies frequently. Lately, I just don't. 
have the interest nor the time unless it's particularly, particularly fascinating. I mean, recently when it was colder, I checked out a couple of movies, but, uh, yeah, you know, I got enough stuff going on as is like most people in the world that I, I just don't do movies and, you know, with the podcast, my free time that maybe would have gone to watching a movie goes to researching for the podcast, listening to other podcasts or working on my own podcasts. So and there's always an endless amount of things to do. So if you like the show, if you appreciate listening, don't hesitate, even if it's just a one-time donation, which you can easily do that. If you go to uh, www.myfamilythinksomecrazy.com, that one-time donation is right there on the page. And if you want to subscribe and help me out, keep this train on the tracks every month be sure to go on the patreon not only do you get a bonus version of the illuminati confirmed podcast where juan chris and i talk off the record candid uh it's not really off the record you guys get to see it but it's a fun time and we definitely don't hold anything back uh we share it all and yeah i've revealed too much already but if you want to hear that it's very fun Go on the Patreon. And then also we have some bonus audio content. I mean, it's changed a lot. You could see the different seasons of the of the Patreon content. But lately I'm doing a bonus show to give everybody a spirit animal name. We're doing a Patreon meetup where everybody who supports the show is welcome to join in a Zoom meeting and hang out and talk and chat with everybody else who supports the show Last time we did it was 420. We got about eight or nine people together. It was a good time. It was a good, good time. Tara showed up. My girlfriend was there. That was fun. And uh, shout out to Matt Justice, my boy. First guest on this show. He was there. And uh, yeah, it's a good time. So if you want to support the show, keep me doing what I'm doing. Help me pay for the repairs on my car, pay for rent, all the other crazy things that I got going on. I mean, tis life as a full-time podcaster. I do make some income through the clients that I have, through the people that I help with the podcasting biz. So if, hey, if you're in the need for that, email me. Maybe I can help you out. Um, but yeah, aside from that small amount of money I make, it's it's really coming from you guys, the listeners on the Patreon, the Rockfin Everybody who supports and buys merch. If you want to buy some art, we have art for sale on our Kofi store. You can find that link on the website as well. But anyways, enough plugs. Let's go to our conversation with Mr. Micah Dank, author of the Into the Rabbit Hole series, studier of all things astronomy, celestial, astrological, and the decoder, he's breaking down the codes, the symbols. Today we talked a little bit about the Book of Mormon. We talked about some of the Hebrew scriptures. I wonder if we talked about the Book of Enoch. That'd be great if it fit in with today's conversation that you just heard with Robert Sullivan and I. But either way, enjoy. And thank you for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Leave me a message on Telegram and tell me why your family thinks you're crazy. And that's it. I'm not gonna sink cause I'm lazy. Smoking too much weed, I'm feeling hazy. You already heard it. 
I'm here with a good friend, someone who I've gotten to know very well. I even had dinner with him and his brother and his niece not too long ago in their lovely, lovely locale, somewhat close. Uh, I think this was a, a place you frequent, but we won't give, you know, we won't dox you, but it's it's not too far from, from where I'm at. So we got together and, and Mike and I have become buddies over the past, I think maybe a year and a half or so since I've known yeah, him. Yeah, good. It's been a good two years. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to have you back, dude. I think this is your your third time on the show. You've done yeah. a lot since we we first met. And for those who are new, maybe they're here from my recent episode with David Ike. Maybe they haven't gone back to some of the earlier episodes. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you've been up to lately, bro. Sure. So my name is Micah Dank. I'm an astrotheologist. And what that basically means is I take the zodiac and the constellations and I decode ancient holy texts, the Bible, the Quran, the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Code of Hammurabi, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They can all be uh, broken down with this. Now I've given, Mark, I've given you my youtube channel in the chat so if you want to pin that i would appreciate it so people could just come and join and see some of my work i have an eight book series out about the topics and many others in fact my well technically six are out but in fact the first book is uh, the first half of the book i got turned into a screenplay and my publicist is currently uh, starting to pitch in five days to producers my publicist that my good friend Mark over here introduced me to, who's been a blessing. It's just been it's just been great. It's been great. There's been some some idiots along the road that you have to deal with when you're in this kind of conspiracy realm and stuff like that. But that's basically what I do. If you guys go to my YouTube channel, you'll be able to see some of my basic works that I've done. I only put the YouTube channel up a week ago because uh, I had a lot of people bothering me that wanted a centralized place where I put up all my work. It's been it's been great. I recently did a pet podcast with Santos Bonocci because I teach at his syncretism school. And, you know, I got to know Jordan Maxwell pretty well before he passed. And, you know, that's, that's basically it. You know, I'm just some dude from Long Island who's figured some stuff out. And uh, I've also started the Book of Mormon too. So basically, yeah, as far as decoding it goes. And I know it sounds a little crazy for people who've never heard of me or who've heard, never heard of astrotheology or my work, but I if you were to watch my intro video on YouTube, I think it would make a lot of sense. I've been getting a lot of followers lately. And that's that's basically it. That's what I've been that's what I've been basically up to. Just decoding books, sleeping a lot, <laughs> doing podcasts. And, and that's it. He also told me about some secret projects that he's working on. More information, I'm sure, will come out soon. Big, big developments there. But other than that, there's some sad news that befell the conspiracy community. Somebody that you become acquainted with, maybe even became friends with over the yeah. years as a researcher yourself. Someone who made a huge impact on the podcasting community, the conspiracy community, and and hopefully the world in a positive way. I remember first hearing him on, I think it was either, it had to be Tinfoil Hat, but I had heard word of him before. People had mentioned this guy's name, and I probably went and you know, listen to one of his videos on YouTube or something. But I was really more of a podcast listener, so it wasn't until his interview on tinfoil hat that I really became acquainted with who Jordan Maxwell was. And I didn't work for tinfoil hat at that moment in time. 
so there was no direct connection. But you became acquainted with Jordan Maxwell, sadly passed away uh, a couple weeks ago prior to this record. Tell us a little bit about that, Micah, if you will, Jordan Maxwell, and, and how you, you became first acquainted with him. When did you first learn about him? Well, man, he was the first one that even got me into any of this. I saw a video that he did and he broke down how everything is Saturn related and Saturn worship. And one of the first things that he ever said that I, I loved was when he was talking about how in the, in the Bible, in the book of Luke, they're talking about going to find out where they're going to have their Passover. And he said, go into town, you'll see a man with a water pitcher. And he made this case that the man with the water pitcher was um, Aquarius. And I'd never heard of that, and I thought that was so cool. And then it, it was just like clockwork. I was talking about Jordan. Two minutes later, one of my friends sends me a video from Santos Bonacci called Know Thyself, and it just blew me away. It just it opened my mind. It took me to a brand new place. <clears throat> and so these two have been pivotal people. So this is 2013 or 2012, 2013. And what I did was I realized this information was so interesting that I had to had to write a book about it. And then, so originally it was one book. And then I, I studied the greats like George Orwell or Aldous Huxley and, uh, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Philip K. Dick. I, I noticed all these people, they put their truth in fiction. And that's how you reach the masses, you know, because you've got your Graham Hancocks, you've got your Dan Winters, you've got your Mark Passios. They all write nonfiction books, and then it's kind of pigeonholed into a community. But when you write a fiction story, it opens it up so much further, and you can red pill people softly without them even knowing. Like, I just dropped gems in it, you know? So basically, uh, I, I wrote one book. My friend read it, and he was like, this is amazing. You got to keep with the series. I want to know more about the Black Pope. I want to know more about this. One book turned into two, which turned into a trilogy. Three turned into six. Six turned into eight. And uh, in 2000, and let's see here, after I finished my first book, I pitched it to a bunch of agents, literary agents. I got turned down by all of them. It was like 120 agents I got turned down by, so I self-published it. The book originally was called Decoding the Phoenix. That was the series. And then what happened was I self-published it. I made a couple local newspapers, this and that. No real podcasts yet. And then what happened was I wrote my second book, and then I pitched that to agents and then one of them actually said yes so we edited it and we, we 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 built it up she pitched my second book to a whole bunch of uh publishing houses and not one of them picked them up because they said it was mid-series and they don't want to pick something up mid-series so what we had to do at that point was i had to change my pen name i had to change the title of the book which is now into the rabbit hole series so I went from decoding the Phoenix to into the rabbit hole, changed that. We repitched it from book one. And then I got another like 120 rejections. And then the last guy, one of the last people finally said yes, you know, and you know, they, and this, this particular house speaking volumes, it's an award winning, award winning publishing house. They picked up my trilogy, even though I had six at the time. And then they eventually picked up six, they picked up eight. And now they let me do what I want. Basically they let me write what I want. So, and, and I knew that this information was like sacred and it was mind blowing and nobody knows about it. You know, I talk about, I talk about in my book series, remember it's a fiction book series. Okay. So I talk about astrotheology, but some of the other topics that I tease or that are part of the storyline 
I'll just to give you an example of like 20 or gematria, etymology, numerology, astronomy, astrology, astrotheology, out of body experiences, the Akashic record, symbology, remote viewing, religious secrets, capstones of the pyramids, mystery school channelers, near death experiences, DMT monitoring, lucid dreaming, acoustic levitation, physics and quantum physics, psychotherapy, psychology, spiritual guides, shared dreaming, crystal technology, conspiracy that not many people know about corruption and secret societies just to name a few and all this stuff is interwoven into an eight book series and uh, I left a little opening towards at the end where things might come back but I haven't written myself into a corner like Sherlock Holmes uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did with the battle at the end and he kind of they kind of both fall off I haven't written myself into a corner yet. There's a, there's a way to escape to make a ninth book, but as of right now, I, I kind of wrapped it up in eight. Anybody that reads them absolutely loves them. They get addicted to the series. Now, and, uh, considering yeah. your knowledge of Gematria, was there sort of a planning that it went into choosing maybe eight, uh, maybe even like the numbers of pages or chapters? Do you factor that sort of Gematria into the actual structure? No, it's more, it's more of it's more of the storyline. Like what, like one of the things is it ties the Jewish word uh, life into the number 18. And that turns out to be a code for something. So there's things that I do, but now my books aren't long. They're all about 50,000 words. They're not long at all. You know, 260 pages or so. And uh, you know, 250, 260 pages. They're, they're quick action reads, very Dan Brown, very Da Vinci code like, but they're deep. So you can get through the book quickly if you just read it as a story, but if you slow down and actually read it and take it all in, there's a lot to go through. So it's kind of like my magnum opus in a way. It's kind of like my gift to earth. Now, how much of your, done. your inspiration from Jordan Maxwell makes its way into the, the series? So what I do is I have an introduction video to astrotheology, which in book seven, my character basically just spills over towards the end of the book. He basically gives a lecture. I would say maybe 10 or 20% of my, maybe 10% of my work is Jordan's between Santos and Jordan, maybe 10, 15%. The rest is my work. The rest is my original work. And I just put it in a, a fiction series, you know, and I'm trying to kind of ride the wave with it. You know, I got two audio books out. My first two books are out on audio. Bronson Pinchot, actually Balky from Perfect Strangers. And he was in the Langoliers and this and that. He actually audio read my second book. And we've had conversations before on the phone. And, and I've talked to him about, you know, not so much character development because he's, he's a way better actor than I ever was. I was an actor in high school, but he, yeah, I just gave him some pointers on what the characters were like. And, and he really killed it in book two. So if I find out this month, if Audible is going to continue and give us another contract for any more of the books. And if that's the case, I'm just going to hit up uh, Bronson again and ask him if he wants to read the rest of the series. Right. Now, when it comes to your videos and your presentations, you mentioned that around the final chapters of book seven, you said there's this lecture that, you know, sort of bleeds into what you present how much of of your presentations are inspired by what you wrote in the book were there things that you were writing about that you're like you know i could really like do this better justice if i also provide you know your presentations because you showed me your youtube channel 
at the beginning there. You almost have 23 videos, I think, at this point and possibly more yes, by the yeah. time this comes out. So, you know, you got a lot of information there. Is that all present within the book or? or are they- I try to. What I do is if I think of something clever that the characters are going to because my books are kind of like Da Vinci Code if the characters were young wise asses. So there's a lot of like raw humor between friends. You can really get a feel between the characters as their friends, you know, how car- how friends talk to each other. So if I think it's something witty or creative that uh, one of the characters is going to say, I'll write it down in a Word doc. I'll write down an interesting factoid or a tidbit that I thought about or that I read about in a Word doc. And then I just keep writing things in a Word doc. When I get to about let's say 10 or 12 pages worth of word docs. I print it out and then I just take a highlighter and I go chapter one, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and I go through it all. And in this way, I never really have any writer's block. I've written eight books without any writer's block. When I start writing it, my first book took me two and a half years to write because I just wanted it to be perfect and I was new at it and I I didn't really take a lot of chances. I've evolved as a writer since then. My seventh book took 19 days to write. I'm curious now, you know, covering the things that you've covered, you know, one, one thing I've seen you talk about on other podcasts is a book of more. Are there any Mormon characters towards the end of the book? There are not. In fact, so I was in, I actually put this on my Twitter. I mean, I'm a, my uh, Facebook. I was in Maryland, right outside of Baltimore, this Saturday, this Sunday. My aunt passed, and I was uh, clearing out her apartment, or just taking what I needed. My dad was down there. My uh, cousin was down there. And when I got back to the hotel room, I was exhausted, so I laid down in bed. I opened the drawer because I knew there was going to be a Gideon Bible in there. And when I opened it, there was also a Book of Mormon. And I was like, a Book of Mormon in in Laurel, Maryland, really? So I was like, you know what? I'm taking this. So I took the Book of Mormon. I went home. And then uh, yeah, two days ago and yesterday, I went through the first chap, the first book of it, um, looking for astrological, astrotheological codes in it. And I found some and I put together a presentation. And I actually did it twice today on two other podcasts. And I put it up on my YouTube channel. It, it, it's like whatever book I touch, I find these codes in it. You know, and they're very simple. They're very simple. You just have to understand astrology and understand what the signs mean. And I teach that for intros very well. For new people, they can follow right along. You know, and you'll find out that this is the basis of all the books that I mentioned earlier. You know, all the Egyptian books, the Babylonian, the Sumerian. Even the Code of Hammurabi has it. And it's just, it's, it's amazing because to my knowledge, nobody knows this. To my knowledge, nobody knows this. Yes, they know about astrology and astrotheology. Yes, you might have start, uh, watched Jordan Maxwell and Santos Bonacci, but no one is decoding all these ancient texts like I am, the way I'm doing it. You know? So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep at with the Book of Mormon. Probably not today because I'm a little exhausted, but yeah. <laughs> when it when it comes to this this skill set or this, you know, maybe these tools that you're using to decode, is it as simple as understanding the planets, their associations, and the different symbols that are used to represent them? Or is it more complicated than well, that? I I mean, can, how much what of, I can do is... Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering how much of astrology did you start with? Like, where where would you say if somebody is out there and they want to take up this art of decoding as well, wh- what kind of tools would they need in their toolkit to get started? So I'm literally... 
early, I'm going to take 10 minutes and I'm going to show you what I use to decode it. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go through this now, ignore the book of Mormon. Cause we're not actually going to decode something here. If people want to see it, they can watch my YouTube channel, but let's go over the 12 signs. So you understand what you're looking for. So the first sign that I explain is the sign of Aquarius, which is represented by the man with the water pitchers. You can see. So keywords, whenever you hear the word son of man or man, because this is the sign of the man, Virgo is the sign of the woman. Baptism, because this is how you baptize someone. You have a priest holding a thing of water, pouring it onto a baby's head. Water pitcher, fountain, stream, river, pond, lake, creek, watery things. They're talking about Aquarius. Pisces is the sign of the two fish in the water. So all the water examples here, fountain, stream, river, pond, lake, creek, that also applies in Pisces. So the first two are water, okay? Even though Aquarius is actually an air sign because there's water in it. When you decode in the Bible, you can use water. Next, Aries is the ram. And in Aries, you have March 21st, which is the spring equinox. It's a 12-hour day, 12-hour night. It's also the Passover or the passing over of the sun over the equator and back on its way to its height in the summer solstice. In Christianity, the passing over is changed and called the resurrection of God's son. In Judaism, the Passover is when the angel of death passes over Egypt. Anyone that doesn't have the lamb or the ram, Aries, the ram, anyone that doesn't have the ram's blood smeared on their doorpost, um, their firstborn sons get killed. So whenever you hear ram, lamb, shepherd, ram's horn, you're talking about Aries. Then Taurus is the bull. And when you look at the sky and you see Taurus during the season where it's supposed to be, it's as above, so below. You see the bull in the sky. You put the plow on the bull on earth so that you can plant the seed so you can harvest in Virgo and Libra. Now, back in the ancient times, they didn't have machinery like we do. We don't have any John Deere machinery like we do to plow now. So they used to physically use the bull. That's why it's the bull. So whenever you hear bull, ox, calf, or cow, you're talking about Taurus. Then Gemini is the twins, the story of Castor and Pollux Troy, whose sister was Helen of Troy. It's the story of Achilles. So whenever you hear twins or brothers, they're talking about Gemini. Then Cancer is the crab. It's the sideways moving creature. So just as the sun rises a degree on its axis, starting on December 25th, then another degree on the 26th, then another degree on the 27th, every day starting December 25th after that, the sun rises an additional degree. The days get longer, the nights get shorter. It stops on June 21st, that's the summer solstice. And then it doesn't move up or down. It stays at that height for three days. Then on June 25th, it lowers a degree. And then on the 26th, it lowers another degree. Now the nights start to get longer. The days get shorter. When it hits December 21st, that's the winter solstice. Then for three days, it walks sideways there too. And then it comes back to life on December 25th. And the sun does this throughout the year. Every year, it does the same pattern. So whenever you hear crab or beetle, the crab in the ancient Egyptian time was known as the scarab. Whenever you hear crab or beetle, you're talking about cancer. Then Leo is the king. He's the lion. He's the king of the jungle. The ruling planet of Leo is actually the sun. So whenever you hear lion, lioness, or cub, you're talking about Leo. Virgo is the woman holding the wheat stalk. So remember before when you were saying that you plant in Taurus, well, the virgins would cultivate the wheat in Virgo in order to make the bread for the year. So whenever you hear virgin, wheat, grain, seed, barley, corn, girl, woman, for example, they're talking about Virgo. Anything grainy, anything that you cultivate, that's Virgo. 
Libra is the justice. It's the scales. It's the balance. It's the just one. The reason it's the justice is because it judges God's son as it passes over the fall equinox and begins its descent into winter, into cold, into death. Libra is also wine season, which is when you plant for the grapes in Taurus, you can press the wine here. It's the same thing for olive oil season. So what is Libra? Libra is basically three things. It's the justice, it's law, judge, justice, the just one, divorce, marriage, court, lawyer, judgment, lawly things. It's also wine, vineyard, wine press, grapes. It's also olive oil or olive oil. Okay, so it's three different things. Scorpio is the scorpion, and he is known as the betrayer. When a scorpion bites you, it leaves an imprint in your skin that looks like two lips. It's why the mafia has the kiss of death. That's where that comes from. Because what happens is the scorpion would bite you, and then you pull it off, and there'd be a kiss on your wrist or on your hand. But it's full of poison. So that's the metaphor. It's a betrayal. It's why Judas, I mean, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Because he could have stoned him, he could have pointed him out, he could have hugged him, but he ends up betraying him with a kiss because he metaphorically represents Scorpio. There's 12 disciples, each one of them represents a zodiac sign. So the sun is judged in Libra and it's betrayed in Scorpio. Finally, in Sagittarius, this is where the bow and the arrow shoot the sun and inflict further punishment on the sun. This is where the sun dies. Why? On December 21st, the sun is at its lowest point. It cannot rise any lower. It's dead. The ancients would look at the sky on December 21st and notice that the sun didn't rise above the horizon, so they would say it's dead. Then what happens is it walks sideways like the crab for three days. It stays at that low level. So suddenly God's sun was dead for three days. And that's why on December 25th, it comes back to life and because it rises a degree. So the sun is born again, the light of the world, the only begotten sun. So whenever you hear horse, bow and arrow, spear or horseman, you're talking about Sagittarius. And then finally, you have Capricorn, which is the goat because he likes to climb the mountain. Now, if you look at the zodiac wheel on the right, this is, in a, this is how the zodiac is supposed to look with Cancer at the top and Capricorn at the bottom. Any other variation of the zodiac wheel, and it's inaccurate. I mean, it's not inaccurate, it's just not accurate, if that makes any kind of sense. Capricorn's at the bottom of the wheel, so the sun is slowly starting to climb up the mountain back on its way to its height to Cancer, just like the mountain goats climb. So whenever you hear goat, you're talking about Capricorn. And those are the 12 signs, Mark. And I've given you the key words. And the key words is all I use to break it down. And you'll find that what happens is these parables and these, as you'll see in my YouTube channel, these parables and these, these code words break down scripture. Not only will you find that they're mentioning the zodiac signs and the 48 constellations that they knew about at the time, but you'll find that often other than that, they'll make patterns in the sky. Okay. Like for example, I just told you that, um, like Jesus is called the lamb of God. So that's Aries, the Ram. Okay. But sometimes it'll say, so the lamb of God awaits judgment. It'll say something like that. Well, judging judgment, as I've mentioned before, the law that takes place in Libra. Okay. So, Aries and Libra are opposing signs. You'll find that they make connections like that. Okay. More often than not, they'll talk about neighboring signs or connecting signs. And that's all it really is, Mark, is it truly is that simple. And it's just pattern recognition. It's a, it's a lot, lot to know and it's deep, but at the end of the day, it's what you really got to, that's what you really get out of it. And you'll find that it's the same shit for everything. 
Right. So that's, that's basically the 12 sides. And I explain it in every one of my videos because in case someone's new that comes to it, but yeah, those are the 12 signs. That's the story behind it's known as the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell. And that's the story that everyone talks about. Basically we're all going on our own hero's journey. Now, so that's basically how, it. How much of this, you know, cause you, you mentioned this being sp- sort of spurred by the chance of finding that Mormon Bible, yes. How much of these symbols do you recognize throughout your daily life? I mean, I try to keep my eyes open for odd, strange things, and I tend to find discussing these things with folks like you and many others, you know, once you sort of pick up a certain, like, idea of what's out there, you almost are drawn magnetically towards those symbols just throughout your own life. You know, you'll start to notice you know, things like maybe owls, if you're studying something that relates right. to them, just an example, but how much of, how much of the Zodiac makes its way into your, your daily life? Well, I can show you some stuff. You're familiar with the Phoenix suns, right? The Phoenix suns. Phoenix is the story of Christ. The sun, Jesus is a solar deity. Okay. He's the son of God, not the S O N of God. That's the story. He's the sun, okay, which is a flaming form of life that dies and rises from its ashes. That's the phoenix. That's what the sun does, too. It rises and rises, and then it dies. It's betrayed in Libra. No, I lied. It's judged in Libra. It's betrayed in Scorpio. And then in Sagittarius, the bow and the arrow finally kills it. Okay, that's the story. Okay, so this, and then the sun dies for three days, and it comes back to life. So phoenix and the sun is the same thing. But what about the Phoenix women's basketball team? The Phoenix Mercury. Mercury is the ruling planet of Virgo, the only woman sign. So they do embed this kind of stuff that you have to look for. So how else are things encoded into everyday entertainment? The movie Face Off, 1990s movie Face Off starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. What are their characters' names? Nicolas Cage's character is Caster Troy. His brother is Pollux Troy in the movie. That's literally Gemini. I just read you their names. Well, what about Travolta? His name is Sean Archer. Well, the Archer is Sagittarius, the man with the bow and the arrow. They're opposing signs on the Zodiac. Okay, so they embed this stuff. Algol, also known as the Demon Star, has a long history of evil attached to it. In Batman Begins, the evil character's name is literally Raz Al Ghul, who gets his name from the Demon Star Al Ghul. 1990s song video for the Cranberries Zombie. Here, Dolores O'Riordan is painted gold like the sun, and her headdressing represents the rays of the sun, much like Jesus in the crown of thorns. But is it that? So what's the next sign? It's the sun on the cross with the little Sagittarius waiting to kill it. They embed this stuff. They embed this, this science, this knowledge, this ancient history. They embed this into movies, Okay. Katy Perry's Dark Horse video. Here we see the Eye of Horus, the Illuminati symbol. Okay. What about this? 700 sheep and goats were arranged in the shape of a syringe to encourage vaccinations. 700 sheep, that's Aries. And the goat is Capricorn. Omicron variant. Variant Omicron, Draconis, is Draco the Dragon. They talk about in Revelation. Its tail starts in Sagittarius. Omicron variety was first announced in Sagittarius. What happens at the end of Sagittarius, December 21st, the day of the death? You have to ask why they always crash the stock markets in Libra. Why was the only dog to die during 9-11 named Sirius? 
It's all the stuff that I talk about. Now, if I were to show you, why did they always crash the stock market in Libra, Mark? Panic of 1907, October 1907, Wall Street crash of 1929, October 24th, 1929, hand over date to Scorpio, Black Monday, October 19th, 1987, Friday the 14th, mini crash, October 13th, 1989, stock market downturn of 2002, October 9th, 2002. Remember, Libra is the judgment, the justice. It's the ju judging. It's the judgment. And uh, we're being judged judged that's why we have five crashes that happen in libra they always crash in libra now if you also do a little research you'll notice or you won't notice but if you do a little research you'll find out that the largest daily point games in the stock market takes place in aries aries is the first sign of the year it's the spring it's when the it's when everything's going up it's when the sun is rising it crosses the horizon and it rises to the top so there's a lot of stuff that's embedded. I just gave you a little piece of it, but like that's, I'm telling you, it's all there. And, and, and they, the elites do use this against us because we don't know any better. We don't know this ancient science. And that's what I'm trying to teach people. Right now, you know, given the, the jewelry you're wearing, I, I can't help, but, you know, point it out how much of your membership in whatever lodge you don't have to tell us factors into your research. I mean, are there things that possibly you feel like the profane shouldn't be privy to? Have you learned things that maybe don't make its way into your book series out of, you know, just respect for whatever allegiances you, you may no, have made? Not really. In fact, I'm going around from lodge to lodge teaching people this science. The Masons don't know about this. Right. They don't. The Freemasons do not know about this. I'm literally going around. I'm, I have a, a Grand Lodge is in Manhattan, New York. It's on 23rd Street. And June 30th, I'm going there and there's going to be a packed house and I'm giving a lecture on this where I'm going to basically show them what I show you. None of them know this. And I've heard similar things from, from other people. I've even, you know, followed along with a fellow friend, a podcaster who is is not a Mason, but was invited to give a presentation for Masons. And I kind of came to that same conclusion, you know, as somebody who's not a part of any group like that myself, I was expecting a lot and maybe had some, you know, irrational beliefs that maybe the conspiracy community led me to, to believe. Uh, although historically, I think the Masons played a much larger role and, and definitely have their hands in a lot of deadly and insidious things. It really didn't strike me as that when I was face to face with a group of people who, according to, you know, what they represented, they were some high ranking Masons with, you know, within a specialized group of Freemasonry. And they asked my friend, Michael Wan, who I do a podcast with to give a presentation for them. And yeah, I didn't really get the energy that they had any, you know, negative feelings or thoughts for him or no. us or, or really. Masons were, Masons were builders, right? They were builders. They're the ones that they, they built this country. They, they were builders. What Freemason is, is the esoteric knowledge of that. Okay. So believe me, if I was out here divulging secrets, there are penalties that you pay for that. 
the least of which is you're not a Mason anymore. I'm not out here divulging secrets. Right. That's not it. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a, a secret fraternity. It's a fraternity that has certain rituals and secrets, but above all, you're not even allowed to become a Mason unless you believe in God and you pray to God a couple times throughout the day while you're there. Right. Wow. Yeah. And you know, I think that any group that has that sort of boundary intellectually where some things are kept within the group while understandable, it also is inversely understandable for people to be suspicious of that and have questions and want to know, but you know, I myself, although never being a part of a, a group like that, I can respect the need for that in certain occasions. But, you know, there are outstanding cases, I think, like the Skull and Bones, although not directly Freemasonic, has a lot of similarities to Freemasonry. And there's been some research that says that they do things like drink out of skulls and you know, have you seen anything like that? There's none of that. There's no. none of that. There's no adrenochrome. There's no drinking of blood. There's no, there's no Bohemian Grove for this. There, there really is. And look, I'm not going to tell you that every Mason is a great person. Okay, we're all bound together by a brotherhood. But there's assholes in every group. There's assholes in the LGBT community. There's assholes in, in politics. There's assholes in Freemasonry. There's assholes everywhere. You got to understand that, you know, but overall, it's not a benevolent thing. Believe me, I'm not out here spitting conspiracy theories. I'm trying to teach people an ancient science right. and then just go and discredit myself by joining a secret society. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I, I don't mean to put any sort of pressure on you, Mike. I had a, a feeling like you'd be game for these questions and you seem like yeah. you are. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason for people to to cast, you know, this sort of really, you know, it feels like witch trial energy upon anybody who's a part of a group like this. I think, yes, we should have our suspicions always about every single case, because like you said, there's assholes in every group. You shouldn't write off any one person because of their affiliations, and you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And, you know, like yeah. we kind of talked about off the air, there's a lot of assholes even in the podcast community who want to talk shit. Yes you know, behind fake names and, and talk shit. Let's not, let's not name anybody. Cause yeah. I don't want, I don't want to drag traffic there. Right. Exactly. But we all know, and I'm sure the listeners of the show, if they see this kind of thing going on online, they they're quick to unfollow cause they know who the real ones are and who's actually talking shit. You know, we don't need to talk shit, you know, but yeah, it is, it is interesting that, groups like the Freemasons and, you know, insert group here sort of receive all of this hate and frustration from people who seem to have the same goals, you know, like we're all in this conspiracy You know what's funny, Mark? You know what I tell same people? Goals. Go ahead. You know what I tell, you know what I tell people? I go, people who, who, who would say something negative about Masonry without actually being in it or knowing it, I go, Look, you guys are so quick to quote Manly P. Hall. You're so quick to read, you know, the secret teachings of all ages and, and quote his work. And then at the same time, you're going to sit there and tell me that it's evil or that I'm evil. You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. So right. that's what I always tell people. Right. But I mean, there are there are cases like William Morgan who was kidnapped and murdered by the Freemasons and you know 
that nothing was ever done about it. Nobody was ever brought to trial. It, it provoked a big sort of anti-Masonic movement. The first third party political party in the history of this country was the anti-Masonic movement. So although that was almost 200 years ago, it, it does leave credibility on the side of those who want to continue those suspicions. I mean, naturally it should. I mean, we should have those same suspicions for groups like the Catholic Church and any government. If we're going to go right, you have endless patience for the Catholic Church. You have endless patience for politics and and Hillary Clinton and the Hillary campaign. Well, and they have endless faith in this the, this idea that the government's going to save us. Not in all cases. I mean, there are renegades and anarchists who just hate the world. I'm sure, but and and there right. are good people too in those crowds. I don't want to generalize and, and make any right. more enemies. But yeah, I, I think that well, when true it comes anarchy. To, True anarchy is basically just collecting rainwater, growing your, your own food, living off the grid. That's anarchy. Right. Anarchy is not Black Lives Matter ruining things. Right. Flipping over cop cars. That's not anarchy. Right. If anything, that's what happens that's when feeding into the fascist system. That's what they yeah. want us to do. See, our 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 universe is set up, or our world is set up, Mark, so that basically there are tra- there are points that trap that trap us basically in the sense that how do i put this in the right way basically like if you come across a conspiracy theory there's always something there that's already in place that people discredit it with so there's always always going to be naysayers and people who say this isn't true this and that based off of paradigms that have already been set up you know we know that the word conspiracy theory was coined by the cia in order to discredit the kennedy assassination theory you know we know this this is a fact and the good thing is is that the mainstream news is dying and they're not pulling joe rogan numbers they're not doing this kind of stuff and they're getting called out you know, if not just by the right, because the right calls out the mainstream media a lot, then by the conspiracy theorists. And they can't stand it. You know, but the problem is, is there's still an aging population that still listens to CNN and still believes everything they hear, no matter how much. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like cognitive dissonance, basically. You know, in the sense that if you, if you like a politician, you can ignore most anything that they've done that is that that would discredit them okay but if you don't like a politician then the slightest thing you can discredit them on and that's just personal biases that's all it is right right yeah and you know it's easy to to you know just sit back and take shots at people when you have nothing to show for yourself or you you're hiding behind a screen name. And I think that's the case with a lot of the, the detractors, you know, and unfortunately, like I was saying, we're, we're all having, you know, the same sort of motivations in getting into this conspiracy, unless you're, you're, counter op you know counter counter opposition yeah. in some cases maybe that's well that's how you know you've made it that's how you know you've <laughs> made people it people are saying you're controlled up <laughs> yeah that's how you know you've made it well, look the I, way i put it mark let me put it to you this way and i love saying this to people anybody who's doing more than you will never put you down you got to remember that right because it's the people who do nothing who are just keyboard warriors who not 
who, and, and this doesn't go for everyone. You know, there are people who are just out there wanting to learn, but I'm talking about the trolls out there. There's people who exist out there to sit behind a keyboard and discredit things and just start things. But you know what? They're not doing anything. Right. You will never ever be criticized by someone who is doing more than you. And we got to remember that. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the cases of people who do actual research, it's really sad to see that atmosphere because, you know, a guy like Jordan Maxwell, we know he received a lot of threats and how much of that was from people who were just being assholes who were rubbed the wrong way by the, the information he's putting out. How much of that was people who are hiding within this atmosphere of trolling and bullying who are actually working for the government? Because I tend to think that that's why they incentivize this sort of culture on the internet so that they can have their agents hiding, you know, and basically telling us, <laughs> you know, that, oh no, the internet is just this place where people are chaotic no, no, no. You guys are, are creating a situation where that's incentivized to sort of veil uh, a fog or a mist over the whole place so that these agents, these people can go and disrupt and be, you know, these sort of uh, disinformation agents in this sort of subversive way. It creates mm -hmm. this atmosphere for that. And it's, you know, in, in, in the case of Jordan Maxwell, I'm sure he had other things going on in his life that didn't make it easy, but that's the last thing someone needs, you know, receiving yeah. harassment, whether it's government or, or trolls, you know, that, that was one of the things that really struck me with Maxwell was he didn't seem very motivated, you know, like he seemed almost like the, the world had beaten him down and that, that may have changed. You know, I'm, I'm referring to an interview that I think took place in 2018 or 2017, but I, you know, it was a little disheartening to hear that. And I wonder as somebody who, who knows him, you know, how, what were, what were Jordan Maxwell's own words about the world that we're living in today? You know, do, do you remember having he, conversations um, with him about this sort of thing? We had conversations and he, he, he used to say things like the world is going to get really fucked soon, but I'll be dead. So I don't have to worry about it. You know, he always told me that people have stolen his work. People never gave him credit, never gave him his roses. You have to give your roses in this community. Right. You know, you, you have to give your roses. He he was just very adamant. He said at one point, I'm never going to be able to speak in front of people again. I don't know if that was a court order, you know, but he had his website up. One of the last FaceTimes I had with him, he barely recognized me. This was after his stroke, and I think he was on his way down. And he told me on his website, he had examples on how to break maritime law and how to basically become your own, uh, become a sovereign instead of a citizen. You know, look up the word citizen, look up the word person. Those are not positive words. They don't represent people. They represent fictitious entities. And he, he would always talk about that. But he, uh, he saw my videos. I sent him my intro video from my website, and he told me that it was sensational. That was the word he used. So I got to show him my work and the, basically him and Santos, you know, I teach for Santos' school now. The, between the two of them, you know, these two are like my my heroes in research and I've gotten to know them both, you know, so it's been I'm blessed in that aspect. You know, I got to know Jordan before he passed and he was very, he was always very open. He was very kind to people who came at him with kindness. Yeah, and it, you know, 
like I said in the beginning of our conversation, it's it's sad to hear that he passed and he's offered so much really if invaluable research to this community and of people who are open to it, you know, and <clears throat> I hope people have been able to preserve whatever remains on his website. I know there are a few scammers out there who poses Maxwell. So you do have to be careful. I don't recommend people just make any impulsive buys. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to check on him, if you want to support him, his website is Jordan Maxwell show S H O W.com. It is not Jordan Maxwell.com. That is no longer run by him. Okay. Right. Okay. Cause what you'll find is these people that stole his work and stole Jordan Maxwell.com from him. They stay, they mail people CDs. You can buy CDs of his lectures. But what you'll find is that they'll charge you $60 for shipping. And then when you get the box in, right the shipping costs will be $4 because they send it media mail. So they're just, they're just breaking your bank. You know, if you want to support him directly, go to jordanmaxwellshow.com or look him up on YouTube. Right. There is no me without them. There is no, none of my work exists without the two of those. Right. You know, and and I, uh, I, I have, have, have spoken to Santos. He's a very, interesting guy, clearly uh, very intelligent and working on a lot of theories that I think have been touched on by great minds throughout history in a, in a, yeah. a very subtle way. And, and sadly, it seems like there's less interest from the average person in that sort of worldview because we've been taught to see things in this sort of like broken up, very categorical way. So when someone like Santos comes and they're like, no, it's all, it's all blended together, you know, this syncretic view. And it seems to make sense to, to me because I don't know, maybe I, I smoke too much weed or, or I've had these psychedelic experiences. Do you think that's a part of it? Like there's a consciousness shift that's taking place in the people that are understanding this information. Cause it seems to fit like a key in a, in a, in a lock the way this information mm -hmm. unlocks doors for people. People don't understand that to be able to do what I do, what Santos does, what you do, you have to read a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean an absurd amount. I read maybe four hours a day, four hours a day. My library is ridiculous, the stuff that I have. Hey, there it is. I see my books. Yes, they are out underneath that little wooden sign on the <laughs> last bookshelf to the right. Yes, or so you have to read it. You have to read a lot. And what I'm doing different than like Santos or Jordan that neither of them do is I have an English degree. So I've used, I'm used to writing papers and writing stories and this and that. And I've just, I've just made it a story. I've just made it a long story with all this information in it. And they're fun to read and people love them. You can go on Amazon and check the reviews. You know, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to turn it into a TV series. I'm trying to, expand this you know i want to do this because we're in the age of aquarius now and that's the golden age that's the age we're going to wake up the age of pisces was the religious age that's the age everyone was closed down and and the one the elites know this the elites know that this is coming right so what what are the next steps then i mean it's one thing to 
understand this stuff, but how do we act on this? What do you, what do you recommend people do outside of, you know, cause if they're listening to a show like this, I'm sure they're already motivated to understand these things. But I think that's where a lot of this stuff falls short is when it comes to doing something about it. Hence the name of my show. My family thinks I'm crazy. I think people start to get that response when they start speaking up about this. And mm-hmm. that's the first step. That's what we're doing here. Maybe mm-hmm. the next step for me and you was getting our, our message out there. You're steps were creating a book my steps were creating a podcast and for a while this wasn't what i did i would just you know jabber on about it to whoever would listen but outside of creating a podcast or a book what do you recommend people do to really you know get when you when you when you start to watch my videos you'll you'll find the same patterns that i broke down for you before Right. Okay. And then that short 10 minute clip of the hour and a half presentation that I showed you breaking down the Zodiac and everything. What you'll find is when you, when you understand this and then you start reading the Bible, you'll see the patterns, you'll notice the connections. You'll realize that the book was never meant to be taken literally. It'll free you from dogma. It'll free you from the concept of hell, Satan, Lucifer that don't exist. They're all astrology. It'll free you from all that. Once that's free, you are able to develop yourself spiritually. Okay. And then eventually that will catch on to your friends, your family, or again, like that, my family thinks I'm crazy. Mine does too, you know, but that's how you know you're onto something. And then, like I said, when people start calling you controlled op or a shill, that's how you really know you're onto something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think some people take it better than others. I really don't care. It rubs right off me. Nobody's really said that about me quite yet, although we have discussed the haters in this show. As, you know, whenever you're doing something, that, like you said, I think you said it much better, and I might even use that in the intro, is, is whenever you're, the people who are going to talk crap are usually doing way less than you. You phrased it better than well, that. But. I, I, let's phrase it Let's phrase it a better way if you want to keep it this Here. way. This is, how it, this is how it is. People doing more than you will never put you down. Right. Right. They won't. They will bring you up to their level. Agreed. Agreed, brother. And I think this has been another great conversation. A third one on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with your host, Mystic Mark, featuring Micah Dank, author and soon to be. I mean, I don't want I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. I'll let him say it, but big news coming soon for Micah Dank. Definitely check out Into the Rabbit Hole, his book series. There are eight copies out and they all are they're all concurrent with one another. So you gotta start with the first one. So Micah, you wanna leave people with your any plugs that we got your YouTube channel. It's gonna be in the episode description. The Anything YouTube else channel, you wanna share with us? Yeah, people want, okay, so watch my stuff on YouTube. Reach out to me on Twitter. My name is Real Mr. Dank, spell out Mr. Facebook and Instagram, it's Micah Dank. Reach out to me afterwards. Let's talk. I talked to Mark. Do I not talk to everyone immediately after they message me? Yeah. Yeah, I know a couple of new podcasters to put you in touch with. I'm sure they'd love to, to talk to you. My buddy Shane, shout out inquiries of reali- of our reality podcast but but yeah brother definitely prolific you are on almost every podcast 
<laughs> that I'm familiar with. I mean, it's hardly ever the case where I find a conspiracy podcast that you haven't guessed it on. But yeah, man, it's definitely a lot. And people can go to Alt Media United to see some of your links there. And where else can they get in touch with you? How would they buy the books? Amazon seems to be the best place. No, you can get them signed directly through me if you okay. rather support me. Yeah, please. Amazon. Yeah, that'd be cool. So basically, let me put it this way. For those who are not writers, let me explain. My Amazon books are like 17 or $20 each on Amazon. I get maybe four out of each book that's sold. Okay, that's how it breaks down. Bezos gets half and my publicist gets half. Okay, and my publisher, sorry. But if you buy them signed directly through me, I get all the profits. Okay, so if you want to buy them signed through me, hopefully there'll be collector's items one day. I sell thousands of copies for my house. So feel free to do that. Reach out to me. Please watch my videos and then reach out to me. Let me know what you guys think. I would love to have conversations with new people. All right, well, Micah, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you folks for tuning in and have a great moment wherever you are in the now.